Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Here comes the rain again, falling on my head like a memory, falling on my head like a new emotion. I want to walk in the open wind. I want to talk like lovers do. I want to dive into your ocean. Is it raining with you? So, Troy, would you talk to me? Like lovers do. <laughs> it's all been building up to <laughs> Literally, the only reason I insisted on opening with Annie Lennox, well, there's two reasons. First of all, I watched the Grammys, uh, a few great moments, and she was one of them, singing her heart out for her friend, Sinead O'Connor, rest in peace, and I thought it was beautiful. And that got me thinking, because you picked this title, and the word lovers is very... <laughs> much a part of the title but it's also the season for love and so all i'm thinking about is lovers lovers and annie lennox and those worlds collided and here comes the rain again <laughs> so that is my reason for opening with annie lennox how are you troy i hey i love it i love some annie lennox um i'm very pleased that this movie made you think of here comes the rain again yeah because that's a great song um my brain was going all over the place with different love songs that i could have opened with uh perfect choice um and gosh love is in the fucking air roger love is in the fucking air for two reasons one valentine's day this is valentine's day it's a day for lovers Lovers, a day for lovers. Troy, you have a lover, I have a lover, and I feel like Valentine's Day is, it's so much less effective when you're in a relationship. I mean, personally, that's what I take away from it, but I still very much appreciate the sentiment. It's it's more stressful when you're in a relationship because you have to think about, oh, should I, what do I have to buy this person or what do I have to give this person on the specific day that uh, a, a greeting card company made up so they can make a lot of money? So you feel obligated and it's just, it's more stress than it's, than what's necessary. Like, I don't fucking know. We just had Christmas. We just, I don't need another fucking holiday where I'm like, oh, what do I have to get this person? What do I have to do? Fuck. Valentine's Day can go fuck itself for all I care. But the good thing about Valentine's Day is it has given us some great uh, holiday themed horror that we have covered in the past, Roger. We've covered My Bloody Valentine, both the remake and the original. We covered Valentine by the very talented Jamie Blanks, who we had on for our Urban Legend episode. And then there's this film that we, Roger, were supposed to cover two years ago to the day. Oh, my God. <laughs> Unfortunately, it just it never worked out because I had the DV, I have the I own the DVD of this film. And two years ago, this was out of print it, like you couldn't get it. And I had just assumed that when we announced it, that you'd be able to find a version online to watch. And then I know if I remember correctly, like a friend lent you the tape, the VHS tape, and it wouldn't work. And it just became a whole ordeal. And we had to scrap it, unfortunately. 
we did was Zach Schildwachter, my my executive producer and co-writer. He b- let me borrow his VHS of Lover's Lane, and I l- borrowed a VHS player from my friend because I, I did not have one at the time. And I, I just borrowed one, like the only one I could find. My friend's like, yeah, I think I have one. I borrowed it. I hook it up. I put the tape in, and immediately it, it absolutely destroyed the tape. So in turn, I have thus owed Zach Schildwachter a copy of Lover's Lane, now on a brand new Blu-ray because it just got that beautiful release recently. Uh, I will be getting that for him, but I still have not because because I have still not done this review. So finally, his his Blu-ray has been ordered, and I am I am ready. I have experienced Lover's Lane. I can now give my personal opinion on whether or not I fell in love with it. Two years in the making, so hopefully these two years were were worth the wait. But yeah, this is this is we're, we're talking the two thousand slasher flick. Lover's Lane, which is perhaps, you know, best known now because it stars the one and only lovely Anna Ferris, who has gone on to make quite a name for herself and actually appeared in past episode of, of one of our episodes, which was May. She was. I mean, I got to say it. Anna Ferris is one of my favorite Actresses, I dare say actresses in general. I mean, when she hits, she hits. And I can't think of a, a, a chick from our generation who has such a knack for just physical humor. Like, I mean, lest we forget, we've never covered it. And I don't know if we ever will, maybe on a Patreon, but you can like horror or not, but scary movie for fans of the genre, like we get it on another level. You know, we understand those references. They they all hit. And because of that, I think we've kind of come to love and treasure and appreciate Anna Ferris because she just went all in with those movies, man. But she can also do true real horror as well. Like her performance in May is is understated and really fantastic. But then you've got her in the scary movie franchise, and she just takes that Sydney Prescott character, that Cindy Campbell, and makes her <laughs> into something that is 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 kind of checking off all the boxes of all these final girls. Like the references are so great, and she just clearly understands and appreciates the genre to a certain extent. Um, and I appreciate that from her, and I appreciate seeing that. Like she really started her acting journey, like appearing in a slasher. That seems so appropriate for her in a way, you know. Yeah. And you know, Roger, I remember seeing this film for the first time back in 2000 before Anna Ferris was, was known. It was a full like year, year and a half before the scary movie came out. And I, I, when I, the first time I watched this film, I don't know, there was something about her, her particular performance. It's not flashy. You know, she's, she has a, a, a decent sized role, but she's not prominent. She's not the final girl, you know, but I remember thinking to myself and and if people don't believe me, they can go back and, and and I think on my blog, frightmeter.com, if it's still up, which I don't know if it is, I wrote a review and I specifically stated that this girl, I had just, I had a feeling that she was going to become famous. I swear. Like, I just, I don't know what it was about her. There's this, this charm, this uh, warmth that, that radiates from this particular character. And then I remember going to see scary movie in the theater. Like, Oh my fucking God, that is the girl from lover's lane that I knew was going to make it big. And again, it's, it's nothing like her performance in this film is not like, like I said, it's not showy. It's not grandstand. It's just very subtle, typical secondary slasher victim, but there's just something about her character. And it could be because she's in the midst of maybe a lot of bland characters or 
you know, that, that she kind of stands out, but I don't know. There was something about her. So I am glad that lover's lane was the catapult that, that allowed her to go on and to have the career she did. And, you know, I, I do think that the film probably, this film probably would have faded into obscurity, would not have gotten a decent, a beautiful Blu-ray transfer if it wasn't for Anna Ferris being in the film. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I did notice, you know, watching it this time through on the Blu-ray transfer that in the closing credits, they did edit it, which I found very, very interesting. They edited it so that her name is first. It never used to be that way. Her name was never first because I, I own the DVD. So they did make that edit to put her name first. I think one big thing to acknowledge with this, and I don't want to beat this topic like a dead horse, but like, I don't, I think it's hard to avoid coming into this review, especially it being as indie as it is, because this title is pretty indie. You know, if, if you're looking for this title and you're at least a casual horror fan, you're curious to see her in this film. And and I think the thing that she brings to this film and honestly to this cast of characters is a likability factor. Like overall, there's several characters in this group who make weird choices, poor choices, um, unlikable choices. And, you know, she's presented as a character is what you will come to see is like the cheerleader. Like you, you look at her and you instantly think she's going to be played as a bitch and it's never the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And I think it's kind of refreshing that they took such a stereotypical mold for a character, which is the, the which is the cheerleader, which from that era you think of like, 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 um, not another teen movie or something like that. When you think of those kinds of stereotypes and she's not that. And it, it's a choice as well that they put her in a cheerleader outfit, and that is her wardrobe the entire film. Um, so it, it's really hammered in your in your mind that this is supposed to be a cheerleader. But yeah, she is so down to earth. She's so friendly. She she's not standoffish to any of the other characters. Uh, she seems like she can get along with everybody. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves. But because I really don't want to make the film the Anna Ferris show, even though I think she's one of the best things about the film. I think there's a, a tremendous amount about this film to to like if you are an 80s slasher fan. I want to hit pause before we get into the film for two things. One, those Apple uh, five star reviews. We got another one. We went up to 52. Yay, yay. Keep them coming, guys. With the amount of listens we're getting. Uh, which continue to astound me each week. I know more of you have Apple Podcasts and you can just use your little finger and hit that five-star rating for us. Write us a review. Like we said last week, we'll, we'll read them. We'll read them on, we'll read them on the air. (laughs) Can we say on the air? Are we on the air? I don't fucking know. (laughs) Live on the air with Dark Knight of the Podcast. What if we started doing a live show, Troy? That would be, you know, we we have to get back to our our, uh, Patreon guys. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Dark Knight of the Podcast, where we have, I don't even know how many bonus episodes up there so far, but you can go live in the Patreon. We should do that at some point, like go live in the Patreon and just like have a chat. I don't know. We also talked about doing like commentaries instead of like straight up reviews, like live commentaries of a specific film that you guys could you know, play and, and listen along to. So we have some ideas for 2024 for that Patreon. So if you're interested, uh, check it out. But the second thing I want to say before we launch into this discussion of Lover's Lane, and I think this is important, is that if you have not seen this movie, if you have never seen Lover's Lane, I would caution you to seek it out before listening to this review because it does have sort of a out of left field twist ending that I don't really want spoiled for you because it is kind of a WTF moment when it happens. Would you not agree, Roger? I think the movie is 
pretty much from beginning to end a series of WTF moments. Um, but it concludes on its its on its <laughs> grand finale of WTF moments. Uh, and yes, yeah, I definitely think for just the sheer like takeaway of like didn't see that coming at all. Uh, <laughs> you might as well just treat yourself to you know a full untainted. Uh, viewing of Lover's Lane without us in your ears, uh, you know, possibly dropping some of these spoilers because this is going to be a spoiler heavy review as it always is. Very spoiler heavy, very spoiler heavy because you're right. This movie has a lot of WTF moments. It, it subverts it subverts a lot of expectations starting right with the opening scene, Roger, which is a super cliche opening scene that we have seen so many fucking times in horror films. We get two a young couple. I think what's their name? Dee Dee? Dee Dee and Jeff, is it? I didn't even know they got names. (laughs) All you hear is them giggling and canoodling right off the bat, just kissing like lovers do. Oh yeah, they're you know they they're in full makeup mode. And Roger, did you you grew up in Cleveland, right? Did you have a, a a neighborhood lovers lane in your area? Do you remember? I grew up in a very suburban neighborhood. There were no no. I guess there's maybe like lovers lane. I suppose would be like the nearby park, but that like would never go well because it was filled with police. It's a, it's a white suburban neighborhood that's way too conservative for its own good. So yeah, no, there was no place to go and be lovers. Uh, but boy, do I wish we had a place so discreet (laughs) and secluded as this lover's lane well everybody seems to know about this lover's lane but there's never more than one person there you know that's the thing is like they talk about this like it's well known but every time there's only there's always only one person at this lover's lane uh and it's literally a field like let's be honest this isn't a road it's not a you know it's not a you know, a, a parking spot that that's by a cliff that's overlooking the city. This is literally it's like it's like they're driving in the middle of a field. And in fact, they pretty much are because there's a barn and a farm like a hop, skip and jump away. So I don't know if the, I would necessarily call this a lover's lane, but let's let's go with it. This car is parked there. This young couple's making out. I mean, she gets her top, her, her titties out and they're all fleshy and he's rubbing <laughs> all over them. You know, and uh, all of a sudden, in, in good slasher fashion, a, a car pulls up behind them. And of course, the girl freaks out for a second and she wants to quit. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. Let's keep going. And they, they keep going at it until they literally hear something hit the car. And then she's like, no, I'm done. And he has that line where he's like, oh, they're so blue. They're so swollen. <laughs> she's like, that's gross. Oh, but don't these two have some great chemistry for being like what is, well, I was going to say the opening kill, but I mean, technically, let's, let's just be straightforward about the matter. These two do not die, um, which I thought was a really shocking choice. They do get harassed. They have this great little moment where they're in the car and the, you know, the, the shadowy figure mounts the top of the car and starts stabbing his hook through the the ceiling and i think it's a great moment and i think you know of course they're playing into that classic urban legend um lover's lane urban legend that has existed far longer than this film ever has um and i really like that they're playing into that factor but my goodness i was surprised by the outcome of of the sequence in which they get out of the vehicle they make a run for it it's pretty suspenseful it's really well handled um, they get to another nearby car and they discover there's already two dead bodies there. Um, and it does this great scream moment where she screams at the camera, it zooms in on her face, and then you hit these title credits. And so you never are, you never get to revisit 
these two characters again. They don't come back into play, I believe, at all, unless I miss something. But like I said, they're very charismatic, and I was really surprised that they didn't like see a grisly demise. Don't you find that kind of shocking, Troy? Yeah, and that's what I said at the beginning. The film subverts expectations in, in so many ways because it's setting up that classic. These two are going to be slaughtered at Lover's Lane. I mean, the minute the hook comes through the uh, the convertible top and hits the guy in the face, he does get cut. You think these two are going to bite it. And I, I, I actually appreciate the film for going a different direction and, and actually having these two instead discover the couple that's already been brutally slaughtered. So these aren't the opening victims. And, and so right away, the audience is, I think, thinking, oh, shit, well, that's that, that went a different route than what I expected. Where the fuck is the rest of this movie going to go? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely does, for the most part, kind of uh, continue that tr- almost tr- trend in a way uh, over the course of the film. It, it, I think it likes to lead the viewer to think like one thing is going to happen. You're going to get one specific outcome. And then instead you have something else happen. And it does throw you. And it is, a, I would say, a, a, a pro, a positive aspect of this film. Like it is not technically like a by the number slasher. It does give you all the key beats. It gives you all the things you're, you're wanting to see out of a slasher, but it does oftentimes like throw a curveball. Um, and I do think that is a, a positive aspect a positive trait of this film from beginning to end i finished this film and i did think like oh wow like okay that was just a different experience than what i anticipated what i thought i was going to get from this yeah and keep in mind it was 2000 so you know the slasher resurgence that was created with scream i think was already starting to come to a a simmer and so for a film to come out uh, that is a straight slasher film because that's one of the things that roger i really appreciate about this film is that it is a straight slasher film. There's none of that tongue-in-cheek you know, self-awareness that runs through so many films that came after Scream. I appreciate this as a balls-to-the-wall slasher film. I think the filmmakers, the screenwriters, whatever, were really smart in, in these choices because while they like what well, like you said while they set up specific slasher conventions to go, to go by the numbers, they do throw in enough curveballs to make this really unique in the annals of 2000 slasher films. Well, I want to say something to you, Troy, like going into this, and this is honestly, uh, you know, we've had discussions on titles where we have differing opinions, um, but this is really more one that like, I've heard you talk about this film before. And I think for a first viewing, like technically I walked away from this film, not sure how I, how I feel about it. I'm just going to put it out there. I, there's a lot I very much dislike about this movie and I struggle with, but, I think it has a diehard, deep-rooted fan base that really loves this film. And I think there's a lot there that maybe with some further analyzation and better understanding of the overall intention of what they're trying to pull off, I think there's a potential to see a lot more in this movie than I took away from my first initial viewings. So like, I'm just going to be transparent. I did not necessarily enjoy this film, but I see a lot of potential in it. Um, and I'm kind of eager to hear you talk about your experiences as someone who is a fan of this movie, because I think that might open my eyes as as a fresh viewer just stumbling upon this film for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, you know, this film just to, for me just has a lot of charm to it, a lot of heart. And I've said it before on the podcast is I I can appreciate and I recognize when a filmmaker behind something has a passion for the genre and when they don't. 
And I really think that it comes through in spades that this, uh, this director really, really, really had a keen love for the, the genre, the 80 slasher era, and, and just, you know, horror in general, because it doesn't feel stale. It doesn't feel, um, boring. It doesn't feel like, oh, this is by the numbers. It, it feels like there was a lot of heart put into it, you know, pun intended lovers late and the director is John Stephen Ward. I do want to give him a shout out, not just call him the director. So I think that there is a lot of a passion behind this project that for me bleeds through. And I think that maybe I can forgive a lot of its flaws because let's be honest, it does have flaws that I will definitely point out that I, you know, recognize in the film, but, but I think it's, its heart was in the right place. And as an 80 slasher fan, I mean, it gives me pretty much for the most part, everything I could, I could ask for minus a few, a few things that we'll get to. All right. But, um, but after this opening scene and the credits pop up, we, we, we cut to then, uh, at that time, deputy, the deputy of the town, Tom pulls up with his young daughter, Mandy. And basically she's all excited because she made her mom a Valentine's day card. But what we find out is, and what the deputy finds out is that the woman that was murdered on Lover's Lane that these two kids found is his wife. And she was at Lover's Lane with another man who was also brutally murdered. So that's kind of a, a punch in the gut, right? Having the, 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 the sheriff or the deputy show up and this is actually his wife. And then that one fucking paramedic that makes the comment, oh, that had to hurt. It's setting up like, Obviously, what's going to happen in the rest of the film. But again, I think it's just like a gut punch to have this deputy showing up to actually work the crime scene and find out that, hey, this is my fucking wife that's dead. This whole bit, this whole kind of establishing sequence gives me a lot of things I like and, and a few things I don't. I want to touch on all of them. Um, I really just I like how they're expanding off of that opening sequence, that body. What is a body reveal? Um, and they're building off of it, and they're they're developing a great relationship and through story between several major characters who are big playing factors, you know, over the course of the film. And I I really feel that like some of this film's strongest moments are actually a few of the character sequences that it has between characters. These relationships, at least for the adults, I'll say, do are not. Um, underdeveloped, they're not undercooked, they're actually rather intriguing. There's a lot of really unique character dynamics here um, that are introduced rather thoughtfully. This whole opening scene gives a really great starting point for what is an intriguing story. It's, it is plagued with some really big acting. I mean, you've got a few moments of these two men playing off of each other, playing brothers, and it, I mean, it feels like they are trying to consume the camera. They're so big, the crying, the comforting, and then you have this child, and you know how I feel about children, Troy, and I mean, I dare say this young girl is one of the worst child actresses I've seen to date. Um, she is wooden <laughs> like Pinocchio. I mean, this girl can't emote for shit. No shame on this child. This is clearly a very indie endeavor. And I do think this, that is one thing to acknowledge when you know looking at this scene and why it works and why it doesn't. I was actually quite surprised overall just how indie this film is. And you hear that in the audio and you see that in some of the edits and it, it's very obvious that this is a low-budget affair, um, and that does add to that charm. I will give you that, Troy. This film does have a lot of charm. Um, and so this opening, even though it is kind of plagued with 
bad acting, big acting. Um, you you can tell that yes, there's a lot of heart in this, and it's setting up a really interesting story that I am I'm curious to see what comes from it. So I did like the opening, the whole thing through this sequence, the relationship of all of these characters and how they're tied together. I'm curious to see what's to come from it. You know? Yeah. Well, the doctor, a doctor is there, uh, and the doctor is the uh, deputy Tom's brother, and. Uh, he said he, they find the guy, this Ray guy, they find him out in the woods and they uh, basically they're like, this is the guy that just killed your wife. And the doctor is like, yes, yes, this is my patient Ray. He must have escaped, but he, he had such a strong sexual attachment to your wife, Harriet, that I've been working on him to try to get him to, you know, to forget about her for, for years. And I, I guess it just didn't work. And, you know, he apologizes because now fucking Harriet's dead from this guy, supposedly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of reveals are are made in this opening scene that are going to then come back into play because Tom actually realizes that his wife was in the car with uh, Ward Lampson, who his wife is grieving at the ambulance over there and she kind of glares at him. And then it cuts to present day. So this was 13 years ago. It cuts to present day where we get Michael. Michael Lampson, who becomes kind of a, a main prominent character, shows up to school on his bike with Mandy sitting on the step reading her her book. And we learn that Michael's mom, Penny, is Penny Lampson, Ward's wife, the man who was murdered with the sheriff's wife in the opening scene. This introduction to what is now present day present day being like 1999 i have not seen a cast of characters look more of that era i think ever in my life i mean some of the costume choices some of the hair michael with his very like home improvement-esque bangs looking very like jonathan taylor thomas um with these very like very long blonde parted at the center bangs that you know the look i'm talking about not a flattering look um you got you got Mandy, who is now a young woman, and and very awkward. <laughs> like Mandy is one of the most awkward final girl characters we've talked about ever, and we're gonna get in deep about it. I got bones to pick with Mandy, down to her fucking butterfly clip strategically placed all across her hair. Again, very of the era. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I love seeing that though. Like, it feels like 1999, 2000. Like, it is just all over it, and that also adds to the charm for me, for sure. The era. Oh, and then you got Miss Miss Lampson and her tight bun that she's wearing in this particular scene. You know, I mean, uh, but you get, I mean, yeah, you're getting a cast of characters here. Um, so like even out back behind the school, you get, you you basically are introduced to who become the, the main focal teens of this film. So we get Kathy and Tim who are like tonguing each other uh, out on the back steps of the school. Um, you get Janelle and Doug who gave her a ride to school, Janelle played by the ever charming Anna Ferris, who again is in a red and white cheerleaders outfit. The entire film. She never goes home to change. In fact, Roger, all of these kids are in the same clothes, the entire film. I find that problematic because they, you know, this, they're going th- throughout their school day, right? In these clothes. And then they're going to lover's lane that evening to, to celebrate and to fuck. I mean, that's basically what, Michael says they're going to do. Would you not want to at least go home and shower first and change clothes and, and get freshened up? I would think that would be a priority, but apparently not. 
Troy, these are supposed to be high school, I'm assuming seniors. I don't think they've been played by them, but they're supposed to be high school seniors. So high school seniors are disgusting. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if this is the case because I went to a private all boys school for most of my life and I was gay. I didn't have any, anybody I was dating. I was just closeted until I came out and then nobody wanted to talk to me. So I don't know, but do heterosexual people, do they just cluster at least high schoolers? Do they cluster in packs like that and just make out like in public spaces? Because that's a weird thing to me. Like right off the bat, these people are horny. Like, I mean, it is a it is a cliche in slashers that people are horny and want to fuck, but because this film is called Lover's Lane, it's really leaning into it. And I swear to God, the moment you're introduced to most of these people, they're licking each other's faces like right away. You get more makeout sequences with most of these people than you get dialogue. Kathy? Who the fuck is Kathy? I barely know anything about Kathy. All she's doing is making out with that that guy who looks like he has a big dick. You know the one I'm talking about. Is it Tim? <laughs> Tim. <laughs> big dick energy on that one. Big dick energy. <laughs> oh, definitely some big dick. He looks 40, but I mean, <laughs> fuck. Oh, and then, okay, so yeah, so Janelle, Doug, we'll talk about Doug. I mean, whew. but then Chloe. Oh, well, Michael. Michael comes out back to, to kind of join the shenanigans, and he's the one that's like, oh, yeah, we're all set for tonight at Lover's Lane. What's he say? Beers out and clothes off. Woo. And Chloe, Roger, Chloe, played by the beautiful She's beautiful to this day. Sarah Lancaster has, okay. I know we have talked numerous times and, and gay whore guys, male gay whore fans love to talk about who are the biggest bitches in horror. Roger, uh, Chloe definitely deserves to be somewhere amongst the conversation of biggest slasher movie bitches of all time. Oh, absolutely, Troy. And it's because it's the literally the only defining trait that Chloe has. She is blonde, and she's a bitch. And that's all there is to it. Irrationally bitchy. Even to the point that they say she has anger problems, which she does. But God, I've never seen somebody who is just such a heinous bitch ever in my life. I really think she may be just the bitchiest person. Even some of the other bitches that we've seen in Slashers, Troy, have at least like a redeeming aspect to who they are or seem calculated with their bitchiness. This woman's irrational. This woman <laughs> this woman physically tries to drown a man in front of people. She's got problems. <laughs> she has Yes. I mean they they this was uh, Mean Girl before Mean Girls came out. I mean this is this is a uh, Regina George amped up 50 times. Uh, yes, and you are right. And I have that same note. It's it's her only character trait. There is not one moment with Chloe, this Chloe character, that is grounded, normal, uh, a sweet conversation. I mean, she is aggressive. She is wanting, she's forcing men to fuck her. I mean, it is this woman. <laughs> I mean, but goddamn, I love her. She, I mean, she's. On camera, she looks a fucking amazing. She has charisma. It's a shame that this character wasn't given a more depth because I feel like the actress is definitely capable of really t turning in a, a phenomenal performance. If she was just giving more layers to this character, but yeah, I think they just like you're you're a bitch. Just that's all you are. Amp it up, amp it up. I mean, because she comes out, she kisses Michael like in front of everybody, like aggressively too. It's not even like a. Oh, hi, baby. No, she's like, and everyone's looking on and they, they go inside because you can tell, I think it's very apparent that nobody likes Chloe with the exception of 
one guy we forgot to mention, Bradley. We can't leave out Bradley. Chloe, Bradley's the only guy that Chloe acknowledges besides Michael when she comes out. Bradley's a, you know, I mean, dark hair. You, I guess you're, for, for a high school student, I guess he'd be considered attractive, right? He's definitely hotter than Michael, in my opinion. Yeah. I like my guys with like a, you know, a darker complexion. Um, and the, this guy is definitely maybe like Italian or Latin. It's very handsome. Do you want to know a little trivia about this man that I think Tell you're going to find intriguing? Tell okay. me. It's, it's Ben Endres. Okay. Him and Anna Ferris met while filming this movie. And in 2004, they got married. This was Anna Ferris's first husband before Chris Pratt. She was married to him from 2004 to 2008, and they met on Lover's Lane. So not only did Lover's Lane give Anna Ferris her first starring role, it gave her a fucking hot husband. Yeah, I mean, hey, like she's got a trend of guys who look good, but I mean, at least for the one of them are kind of shitty. Um, I've always felt poor <laughs> Anna Ferris when it comes to her her love life. God, I mean, I think she'd be so fun to date. But I don't know, maybe she's a little crazy, but okay, that makes some sense. He's he's hot as fuck, um, in my opinion. And I don't know what it is about him. Maybe it's that he's wearing that classic nineteen ninety nine oh, ensemble, which is a suit jacket, jacket and jeans. <laughs> oh, with jeans and a, a V neck t shirt. My favorite look. Um, but yeah, he works for me. Um, I'll say, like, you know, for the most part, this cast, despite looking very of the era. We've seen uglier casts before. Like, I mean, like for the most part, these people are like reasonably attractive, give or take one or two people. But overall, like, I mean, Chloe, she's she's got a ferocity about her. You know, not only are they attractive, but they're all fairly competent performers. This film's super indie, but you can tell everyone's giving it their all, which I do appreciate about you know all of the leads. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's really a, a, a weak performance. Like, there's no performance I point to and be like, oh, that's terrible. I mean, some are stronger than others, yes. But overall, I think you can tell – another thing you can tell about this film is this cast was having fun. Like, these these teens or 30-year-olds were having a blast with this material. And you can totally tell. Yeah, but like the Bradley characters, he's maybe he's given a little bit more to do. But I, I really wish some of these characters were a little bit more fleshed out because it could have been an interesting dynamic because Bradley does something here real shitty. I think that sort of causes a lot of stuff in the film to kind of spiral, you know, because we don't know him because we don't know his dynamic with, with Michael. It's very much seems like they're very friendly at first, but then he turns around and does something really shitty because like when Michael talks about going to lover's lane and Chloe comes out and kisses him, she's like, Oh, I saw the decorations in the gym. Vomit. We're not going to that dance. And he says, well, that's fine. We can hang out with, you know, the group after, you know, at Lover's Lane. Lane. She's like, oh, great. Another night with your idiot friends. Oh, my God. And she's like, she turns around and leaves. And Michael tells Bradley, he's like, man, I got to break up with that girl. And then uh, fucking Bradley turns around and does something, like I said, super, super, super shitty. Yeah. Yeah. It's disappointing. Not before we get a scene uh, at the Newton State Hospital with the doctor, who is now sheriff, Sheriff Tom. He's sheriff now. That's his brother, right? He works at the, the state mental hospital, and he's talking to who we find out is Ray, who is the guy who supposedly killed the couple at the op- in the opening scene. He is like... I've been trying to get you for years to admit what you did, Ray. And if you just admit it, you would feel so much better. 
just admit that you killed that couple because you wanted to do what they were doing. You watched them. You wanted to be them. And if you admit it, you may, you may finally get to break free from this prison. And like we see Ray just stand up and he has that like plastic hand that's like, like, what's he going to do with that? Whatever. A few things with this moment. Uh, first of all, the hand. They kept cutting to shots of the hand. <laughs> it, kept, it, was, it was throwing me off a little bit. Uh, but I get it. You know, obviously, it's making it clear this guy is in, the man with the hook. Like, let's really make sure the viewers understand that. And they, they get that across pretty clear. You can tell that they're taking a little bit of inspiration from, like, a Dr. Loomis-Michael Myers relationship here. There's a couple of similarities in a few moments over the course of the film where you can see they're definitely taking influence from Halloween, but it's not absurdly heavy-handed, I feel. But this whole relationship, the fact that now you've learned that, uh, is, is it Jack? Jake? Jack? I think it's Jack. 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 Yeah, that Jack, the one brother, the fact that he is the doctor to this Ray, it, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic to throw in there on top of what you already learned with him already being the brother to the guy who's, whose wife was murdered. Like, on top of that, he's the the, the, the psychologist is, or the shrink as well. I don't know. It's a lot to process, I think, at times, but it actually works fairly well, I think, for his character. But yeah, don't... I mean, do you sense, like, a bit of that, like, kind of Michael Myers-Loomis relationship kind of coming through here a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the setup is the same. He's sitting, like, in the center of this large, empty room, and, and the doctor's sitting across from him in a chair, staring him down. It's very Halloween-like. Uh, I definitely get that. They they don't explore it as deeply as they do in the Halloween films, which I appreciate because, again, I think this was just kind of a little small nod and homage to Halloween um, because this is really the only moment we get of Jack and Ray together is this one little scene. And it, it ends with Ray standing up like he's going to attack the doctor and like the doctor realizes he's not getting anywhere with Ray and he like leaves the room. That's really all you get between the relationship but it, again, it does set up, you know, a lot of layers and, and, and potential conflicts based on what happens here in, in a little bit. Our, the audience, like I said, we don't know. We're assuming as the audience that Ray is the bad guy. So when he inevitably, when he inevitably escapes, which he does here in a little bit, we think he is definitely going after Jack, Chloe. And again, the film, though, throws in so many curveballs that it, it ends up not going any way that we the audience think it's going to go. And again, I think that's another thing I can sort of appreciate about the film because you think you might be able to predict what's going to happen. And I guess for the most part you can, but I, I really feel you're going to be surprised at, at some of the outcomes in the film. So now we cut back to the group of teens who are chit-chatting around the school's indoor pool. Um, and they're just talking about Michael you know, swim for the swim team. Why isn't he practicing? Just typical stuff. When we see Chloe walking outside and um, I think, who is it? Tim's Tim's like, Hey, what's the deal with you and Chloe? And Michael's like, man, I don't know. She's even, she's gotten even more crazy than usual lately. And this is when we cut back outside where Chloe walks up to handsome Brad, who's sitting by himself at, his, at a picnic table. And she's like, hi, Bradley. He's like, Oh, hi, Chloe. Oh, I'm so sorry uh, about the bad news. She's like, well, what are you talking about? He says, oh, Michael dumping you. I'm like, fuck, why would you do that? Like, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. But this bitch gets into a rage, Roger. 
a rage. I like this rage. I like this moment. Um, <laughs> the indie comes through at times with this movie, and I really... I, I speak of it fondly when I say that because, again, I really think this was probably a very small budget affair. But there's a few moments, and I notice a lot of them are with Anna, Ferris, Janelle. It almost feels like like the director would be like, okay, uh, just start like having a conversation. And when I say action, like then you'll start your dialogue. But like, you know, just like improvise like some dialogue going into it. It feels like like sometimes you've got characters coming in and like, <laughs> like this moment where she introduces herself to Maddie, it seems very uncomfortable. Like she just walks up. She's like, hi, I'm Janelle. And Maddie's like, hi. And she's like, oh, congratulations on making the cheerleading squad. She's like, yeah, thanks. I just moved here. Like it just seems, it seems so like, like paper thin like these interactions start off really clunky and awkward and then it leads it often leads into like a big moment like you've got this suddenly you've got this sequence where chloe comes storming through and they like whip over and watch as she goes ahead and fucking tackles michael and lunges him into the goddamn swimming pool and that whole moment is great but every once in a while there's these little bits and pieces that feel like almost like they just kind of were like, all right, just roll it. We'll like get whatever we get and we'll just go with it. Like it almost feels like they're like improvising some of it. Do you kind of get what I'm talking about? Do you sense that at all? I mean, I feel like some of the dialogue is definitely paper thin, but I I feel like there's this very specific reason that Janelle introduces herself to Mandy. It's so that she can ask Mandy about Michael because she specifically, after she introduces herself, she's like, Oh, what, can I ask you what you know about Michael Lampson? And Mandy says, well, nothing. We try to avoid each other. Uh, so I think it's a specific reason why she goes. But, but you're right. The dialogue is kind of really paper thin. Like she just walks up. Hi. Hi, I'm Janelle Bay. Oh, hi, I'm Mandy Anderson. Oh, you just moved here. Yeah. Congratulations on making this team. Oh, yeah. But what do you know about Michael Lampson? Oh, we, we try to avoid each other. We don't get along. But it also then reveals to us that... Obviously, there's a tension between Mandy and Michael as well, which is key. Is key. I don't really find that it necessarily makes a lot of sense, but but whatever. Everybody treats. We have to say everyone treats this Mandy like she's. <laughs> I mean, nobody's nice to this Mandy, with the exception of Janelle. But everyone treats her like she has uh, the plague. I mean, she's not a. I, I guess it's a case of. You know, you have movies like She's All That and all this stuff where if you throw glasses on a girl, it immediately makes her unattractive, right? She can be the hottest girl in the world. You throw glasses on her. She's obviously and put some butterfly clips in her hair. Apparently, she's the homeliest thing ever to exist. I think that's what they were trying to do with this girl. But she's not a, she's not unattractive. She's not homely at all. But everyone's treating her like she is like literally the most disgusting thing you would ever see on the face of the earth. I feel like out of all of the characters, Mandy's character is handled the worst. Um, I, I, it's it's so weird because when the movie starts, like you can tell she's going to be a very important, you know, pivotal aspect of the film. Honestly, I mean, she technically is the final girl, but she's treated almost like an afterthought for a good chunk of the movie. Like she comes and she goes like, you know, she's the same girl as the opening sequence. Cause she has the same name, but she's definitely just not explored anywhere nearly as much as like the core group of teens and their, you know, trials and tribulations and what they're dealing with. And this whole thing that's coming up with Chloe getting pissed off about, you know, the whole quote unquote breakup with Michael. And, and I just feel like Mandy gets caught up like, in like uh, in the smoke of all of it, you know, she gets left behind. You know what I mean? Like her character just seems almost like 
like she's just really kind of disposable up until you get some big rev- revelations about her. But that's like halfway into the film. I just wish she was a little more prominent. Mandy is probably my least favorite part of the film. Although without her, you would get Michael as being kind of the final hero. And I, and I also have issues with, with the Michael character as well, because like we talk about with, uh, with Chloe, I do feel like this Michael character is also maybe a little like one dimensional. Like he has one inflection to his personality, one inflection to his voice. Um, and it's, well, I appreciate that they don't go like the full dumb blonde jock with him. I, I just don't find him that engaging of a character. So pair him with Mandy, who again, kind of a, a dour character isn't given a lot to do. The the film is really trying to paint her as being like your typical, like Laurie Strode introvert. Like the first time we see her, remember she's sitting there reading a book by herself. You just, I just feel like one of the weaknesses of the film is you give us kind of two weak protagonists that, that carry or are supposed to carry the, the entire film because they end up being the two survivors. And I find them to be possibly the two least interesting characters of the bunch. They really are. Like they are like, look, watching paint dry, honestly, like even when they start to like pick it up at the end of the movie, like, I mean, at least they get involved in the action of all of it, but they're both very obnoxious and especially fucking Mandy. I mean, like she starts off, at least she's like, not a complete like damsel in distress, but as the movie goes on, she suddenly like crumbles into this just fucking like whiny, obnoxious, squealing, <laughs> shrieking like banshee woman. Like she's just very annoying. Um, and I really did want to like her more. I mean, she's not the worst final girl I've ever seen. We we've discussed that before. Um, but uh, she's pretty close to the top of that list, I would say. And she has that shrill, that really shrill shriek that she does. It gets really annoying. Yeah. She's definitely not my favorite. I will I will totally give you that. These two, the Michael and Manny combination of the of the survivors is perhaps the worst part of the film. And one of the more predictable elements of it in a film that gives us a little bit uh, of of surprise and a little curveball thrown in. I wish they would have thrown a curveball and killed her off or killed him off or did something. So we had something else that, that kind of survived the film. Cause I did like the way that they were sort of setting up, you know, the adults to sort of be the final, final girl and final boy. And that just really doesn't go that route, which that could have been interesting, but, but we will get there because we, we were glossing over Chloe, literally trying to drown Michael in front of everybody in the school pool. <laughs> How dare we just overlook this major moment? <laughs> I mean, she's holding his head underwater. This she is trying to kill him. It's a it's a big to do, and I mean, everybody seems pretty chill about it. But like, girl is clearly trying to commit an act of murder, and the teacher finally comes over, and clearly, then it cuts to them sitting wet waiting in the principal's office. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's really getting physical with him. Like she's trying to drag him underwater. And I think you almost think at first, like you're kind of like laughing along with it. And then you're like, Oh wow. Are they really overplaying this? But I think it's very important to take away from her character. And when you see this, that this girl genuinely has anger issues and it's mentioned in the scene coming up here, 
But I, I, I do like it that they go as big as they do with this sequence. That would not fly today in 2024. No, no. I mean, and then the fact that her dad is acting so casual about it, and the fact that it, it is is quite shocking, but I guess it makes sense based on what's revealed in the film. But it also so shows us that she, this girl can't handle rejection. Like, because the reason she attacks him, she's like, nobody breaks up with me. So like, if you break up with her, you're, you're going to be murdered. Is that what we're, we're gathering? I don't know. It's, it's all real weird. And like, it gets, it continues to be weird because her dad, Jack shows up to the principal's office. Remember Michael's mom is the principal. So Jack should have known this wasn't going to end well for his daughter. And then Tom, Sheriff Tom is in the office too. And so it's all real awkward because of course, Sheriff Tom and Penny, Principal Penny, have this history together because their husbands and wives were cheating on them with each other. It's all real weird. Jack is just like you can like he's enabling his daughter like he's not. He's like, well, maybe we should arrest the, the Lampson boy because he could be a sexual deviant just like his father was. I'm like, sir, your daughter just tried to kill a child. Can we get back to that, please? This whole dynamic between these three characters, I think, is one of the more interesting aspects of the film. This is what I was kind of touching on earlier, because um, it's 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 got so many layers to it. I mean, there's the relationship between the brothers. There's the relationship between the sheriff and Penny, and uh, like you know, this obvious like discomfort and almost hostility that they have for each other. At least Penny kind of has towards him. Um, because obviously there's some resentment stemming from the fact that she, at least she believes that their spouses were having an affair, you know, and he has some doubts and I like that about his character, but that's a really interesting dynamic to have. And then you throw in this whole thing with, 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 um, the doctor and his guide dog, which is never addressed again. Um, but, but, you know, he, he is very, um, interesting in, 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 how he's approached because he almost seems like the most unstable of all of them. He is a doctor uh, and clearly is taking care of like patients in a high facility prison, I'm assuming. Um, but he definitely has certain, certain quirks, certain traits here that feel almost like manic. Um, and some of the things he says, some of the things he jumps to some of the insults he says towards everybody in the room, aside from his daughter, who he's so defensive of. I mean, he's, he's a shit starter. He's kind of a piece of shit. And you really learn that about this character here, um, which makes him even all the more interesting. To me. Well, and it all goes back to that old cliche as a, as a teacher myself, that it all starts at home and, you know, we can sit there and, and, and question for days why kids act the way they do. And once you see them interact with their parents, you know why, uh, you know, parents that just enable their kids. And this is a perfect example. We know why Chloe is a mega bitch that has no qualms physically attacking somebody because she knows her daddy is going to make excuses for her. Principal Lampson has is having none of it, and she luckily she suspends Chloe for a week. I would have expelled her for the rest of the school year, but that's just me. Oh my god, I would have freaking absolutely expelled her and been like, "You can't come back here. You tried to kill not only a, a student but my child." Like that is that is the principal's child. She's being pretty damn cool. Just fucking you know, suspended her for, what was it? How many weeks? Just a week. A week. Oh my God. Come on now. Come on, Penny, Penny, Penny. (laughs) 
I feel like it, yeah, if this if that would happen in twenty twenty four, that kid would. Be oh my god, there. that's why I said earlier. Like she would that girl. Like there there would be charges pressed. Like that would be handled completely differently today. Uh, it is very 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 much swept under the rug <laughs> in nineteen ninety nine. I guess some districts though, because there are districts right now where a kid can beat the shit out of a teacher and be in the class, be back at school in three days. So who knows? But yeah, we we cut to Janelle and Mandy. So Janelle and Mandy have striked up this this nice little friendship. You know, Janelle being the the outgoing chipper one, she'll she'll be friends with anybody. They're talking at a table when Jack and Chloe come out, and he has to stop and make this really creepy like comment. He's like, Mandy, Mandy, my child, you're looking more like your mom every day. And Mandy's like, uh, okay, I, I didn't really know my mom, but okay. And he, he leaves. Mandy makes the comment to Janelle. She's like, you do not want to piss that girl off. And Janelle says, why does she, is she the queen of the school? And Mandy's response is, well, she's on the varsity psycho squad. Her dad, he works at the mental hospital. Her mom killed herself. You get a lot. A lot of information here on this relationship. Um, and it is a very weird dynamic that you get between Mandy and her uncle. And Chloe, who is like, then yeah, her cousin. You really don't see a lot of the two of them together at all over the course of the movie. Um, I do feel like one thing I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of would have been Chloe and Mandy's dynamic. Um, because you'd think there would be some some weird tension there with everything that they know about each other. You know, I I didn't even it didn't even dawn on me until this recent viewing that I did for this particular episode that Chloe and Mandy would be would be cousins. Like that never dawned on me. Having seen this movie probably a dozen times before, it never once dawned on me that Chloe and Mandy are cousins. And it goes to exactly what you're saying. We never see them together. They never interact together. They never say a fucking word to, to each other. And like even towards the end, like of the film there's this whole thing that happens that knowing that they're cousins, you're like, wouldn't she be a little bit more, but it's never mentioned. So it's, it's really weird that they did not explore that dynamic because like when Chloe walks out, she kind of just glances. Like she acts like she really doesn't even know them. And, and I, I really would have liked to have seen, like you said, a Chloe Mandy dynamic because there has to be one because it seems like Jack and Tom are close they live in the same small town. They have a relationship. So wouldn't Chloe and Amanda have a relationship? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of different things here that that I think go underexplored. I think the adults, for the most part, get get most of this uh, kind of character development, which in some in some aspects I actually appreciate um, because I do think they are oftentimes the more competent actors. But there are a lot of relationships amongst the teens that I think uh, should have been explored more thoroughly and would have really enhanced the story. But overall, like, how long is this movie? It's like an hour and 27 minutes. Like, I can't imagine jamming more story into this film than is already there. I mean, it's, it is a pretty convoluted story when you think about all of it. Oh, it's, it gets really convoluted and it gets really icky when you realize what's going on for real i mean it's it's actually quite ballsy i think but uh yeah so we get a, a little moment of penny dropping michael off at home and she's grounded him because of you know his interaction with Chloe. but i'm like wondering why did why would he get grounded he did nothing like michael did nothing to deserve to get grounded he did nothing like he was attacked 
don't get me started, Troy, on how fucking Penny handles this. This poor guy, not only did he get attacked, but he sh- like shared a piece of information with his friend, confiding in him because he's scared of this girl for good reason. She's trying <laughs> to kill him. And so then that guy manipulated the situation to cause him to get attacked, and he's being fucking grounded. If I was Michael, I would be, I would be having something to say about this. Uh, but here's the thing, and it goes back to like this Michael character. He doesn't he's all chipper. He's all smiles. Like that's his whole demeanor through this whole film is just kind of like, Oh, I'm going to smile it off. I'm going to make, I mean, dude, you're you. Why wouldn't you not tell your mother? You did nothing. Like I was literally standing, talking to my friends and this crazy bitch threw me in the pool. No, I'm not grounded. Sorry, mom. It's not, that's not how this is going to work. No, he's all chipper about it. He's like, okay. Uh, although he does, I guess he does sneak out of the house, but whatever. He's much too happy about being grounded for something he didn't do. And I don't understand her motivation even with grounding him. Like, I understand maybe she's coming into it like, I'm, I, you know, I'm having to play principal because I am the principal, so I can't play favorites. And I don't know the ins and outs of what happened. Um, so I could see her being like, okay, I have to do something here to crack down. But for her to, like, take him home and be like, you're grounded. Like, girl, like, you already know what a fucking shit show this Chloe is. You see everything behind the scenes. You're the fucking principal. You, more than anybody, knows what's going on here. I think that's kind of shitty to put this on your your sweet son with his Jonathan Taylor Thomas bangs. (laughs) But he he goes inside. He eats some corn chips, and he's he's fine. Um, At the hospital, Jack is there doing the books. Uh, doing some paperwork and he has, I don't know. I find this odd. This is the first thing that's kind of odd to me is his, his, I guess it would be his, his sister-in-law, right? Uh, Yeah. Tom's wife would have been his sister-in-law. His sister-in-law was brutally butchered by this madman with a hook. And on his desk, he has the hook in a fucking glass jar. What? This this is the murder weapon that ripped your fucking sister-in-law's throat out. Why is it on your desk is what I want to know. There are, are uh, there's truly a series of things happening around this point in the movie that I can't I cannot grasp my head around it. I can't understand some of the choices that are being made. Um first issue, hook in a jar. I don't understand why is he like celebrating his successes of, of like capturing this guy? Is that like his, his, like he looks at it like a fucking like moose head up on a fucking like wall. Like you do when you fucking like shoot something. Is that like his, his way of celebrating that he has this guy fucking in, <laughs> imprisoned? Um, I don't know. That doesn't make sense. It's clearly there just so it can be taken. But then also you've got this other thing where like he goes downstairs, he finds out there's an alarm going off. Things get real dramatic. Uh, he runs downstairs. He finds a scene where the, the, it's clear that Ray is killed and orderly and escaped. And okay, that's fine. Honestly, I'm a little baffled by that choice when I learn what I learn as the movie progresses. I don't know if it makes sense that Ray would do this, but okay. And then on the, on the wall, in, in blood, <laughs> and I mean, it, it had to take some time for him to, to, to do this, to execute this, because in, in big letters, he has painted prison food sucks on the wall. And I'm confused by this. I almost wonder if in a way, if like, did, did Jack like set this up? Was this a plot? Was this a plan? Not to like lean into spoiler territory. I know we're not there yet, um, but it just seems 
if that's his motivation for escaping, like, come on now. Like, is that really Ray's motivation for breaking out? Is because the food sucks? Because I hope so. Honestly, if that is really the reason for this guy busting out, I get it. Like, I am a, I like food. And if that food is not good and that's all I've got, I'd be breaking out too, Ray. But he, but it doesn't make any sense if that's the reason why he broke out because he does go to Lover's Lane. I mean, he is there. It's not like he breaks out and runs and goes to a fucking, you know, Golden Corral or something for a, for a good meal. He, he actually goes to Lover's Lane. So I don't know. Uh, this is one, honestly, Roger, this is one choice in the film that has always, always baffled me of all the things that this guy, based on how convoluted this plot is, could have written on the wall. Why is it prison food sucks? I, I, I'm thinking it was like the one moment in the film that they were trying to be funny because again, this film is not humorous. This is not a scream. This is not a, you know, this film it plays itself very seriously. It's a straight up slasher. Um, so injecting this bit sort of really falls flat for me. And I, I don't, I don't know what the intention was here. I'm almost curious, and I, I touched on this a little bit, and I thought maybe you'd expand on it because maybe you'd know, but I can't tell, and I'm really not sure. I'm really curious if, again, knowing how things go down, if this was something that was planned and, and planted specifically, timed out in a way. The, the timing is just too specific with everything that happens, you know? Uh, especially when considering that there's this whole big breakup that happens with Chloe at the exact same time. Like, there's got to be something that sets this off, that sets this into motion. Or else things seem just, like, really, really strategically timed for all of this to happen at the exact same time, you know? Yes, let's put a pin in this moment and revisit it towards the end of the episode, okay? Uh, where we where things are revealed and then we can really elaborate on because I know exactly what you're saying and I've had the same thought but then things don't make sense if you go that route either but we'll we'll come back to that we'll circle back uh, in health class we do get a scene of Principal Penny telling the kids she knows it's Valentine's Day and you know they're gonna go out and have fun but be careful and she pulls out the longest fucking condom I've ever seen in my life. Uh, this thing, this must be for Tim. This must be for Tim because this thing is like 12 inches long. Uh, okay. Well, first of all, good good for her. Whatever, wherever she got that, Penny's been getting it in. Um, I got to point out something about Penny Penny, though. Uh, that, that it's, it's been a long time coming. And this is the right time to bring it up. So start of the, the first time we meet Penny, Penny's got a sensible bun. And it's very much what I would assume to be her hair. I'm not led to think otherwise. Then we come back to Penny when she's dropping her son off after grounding him for no reason whatsoever. And she, I, I'm looking at it and I am convinced that I am seeing a wig. But it's like, it's dark, like they're in a car talking. I'm like, maybe it was just an unflattering angle. I must be losing my mind. And then it comes back to Penny in this sequence and now Penny again has the natural sweeping bangs, uh, and and clearly has rooted hair. And so I'm assuming this is her normal hair. But um, Troy, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it just me, or are there moments over the course of Lovers Lane in which that woman is wearing a very cheap wig? Is am I right in saying this? 
Roger, Roger, you know there is because you sent me the screenshots of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know there is. We're not even talking about how many screenshots of this woman's hair I got over the weekend. Well, because it was catching my eye, Troy. And at first, I wasn't sure because, listen, if someone's going to rock a bad wig for a movie, go for it. Like, But just keep it consistent. But to start it off with an unassuming natural bun, only to be then presented with a that really long, very cheap wig mounted up on top of that woman's head with bobby pins. Like, you know, they were like, what the fuck do we do? She must have gone off and filmed another movie. They must have come back together, I don't know, a year later to finish up Lover's Lane. She looks completely different. I like to think she had her head shaved. And... <laughs> For a G.I. Jane-esque film, maybe. And they're like, we gotta fucking put a wig on her. Like, we don't have any other option. We're gonna, someone go get, go to the local Halloween store and get a wig. Because that's literally the quality of wig. And it's very distracting. It's very distracting. I don't know why they would have to put a wig on this poor woman. Um, Maybe you're right. Maybe she filmed something else and she had to cut her hair off. I don't know. But yeah, there are moments. It's, It's blatantly obvious. It's a wig. I mean, it is what it is. It's, 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 but maybe that's supposed to be the character. You know, she's, she's a dowdy middle-aged principal. Maybe she just likes to don different wigs for different occasions. I mean, she has her condom to the health class wig. She has bowling alley punching a woman wig. I mean, she has all kinds of wigs. That she what? <laughs> what are you? Are those the kinds of teachers and principals you deal with that have different hair for different occasions? Absolutely not. Well, I like to think that she's got a fetish. She's got a kink outside of like when she's not this uptight principal who is a widowed. After she found out that her husband was having an affair, I think she was like, "Fuck it, I'm leaning in." And she's got wigs. She has an alternate alias. She's a dominatrix, and we're just seeing a glimpse of it. But for the most part, we just see Penny. I could see her totally as a dominatrix. Totally. Oh, 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 absolutely. But during the, during the, or after she pulls up that condom, Sheriff Tom comes into the classroom, pulls her aside, and all he has to say to her is, he's out. And she knows exactly what he's talking about. Michael's on the phone at home with him, and assuming it's Tim, talking about, oh, you got to pick me up. Oh, yeah, that was crazy what happened with me at Janelle at school, but I'm grounded. But yeah, you're still going to pick me up because you're not going to leave me hanging. I'll get out. And then his mom pulls up. And as she pulls up outside, we cut to her in the car. She does hear the radio announcement about Ray escaping from the asylum. And she gets a startle because Michael has come outside to knock on her window. And she reacts quite harshly by screaming at him to go back inside. Get back inside that house right now. Now we cut to... The bowling alley. And I guess, you know, this is a small town. I, I, I buy it. It's a small town in Washington. And so it, it makes sense that people just kind of hang out at all these same places together because Mandy's there and she, she's studying. I, I would feel like there's quieter places to do your homework than a bowling alley. I mean, I really like the bowling alley as a set. I'll say it's very cute. It's very um, uh, aesthetically pleasing. I really like that they use this environment, and they don't overuse it. But yes, it does feel kind of weird that she's there, especially knowing that I don't think any of these people like her. Um, well, aside from sweet Janelle, who seriously is just there to be pleasant. That's all she's got. But hey, at least she's fucking likable. Um, and she's instantly like running to Mandy's defense, sticking up for her, barely knows her, just introduced herself to her literally earlier that day, um, knows nothing about this girl, but she's quick to run to her defense and be like, oh, I like her. She's my friend. 
Well, Janelle is there. Janelle is at this bowling alley. Oh, Janelle's there. Kathy's there. Tim's. They're bowling. Janelle, none of them have changed clothes. Janelle is still in that damn cheerleader's outfit, throwing that goddamn bowl down the alley. When Doug comes into the group and tells them the hook is out, you know the hook, and like, yeah, Janelle's like, yeah, I know that story, yeah, in that in that lovely, unmistakable Anna Ferris voice that only she can do. She, I, I like this little interaction. She's like, yeah, I know that story, yeah, my cousin told me that. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, there's Anna Ferris we know and love. <laughs> I've tried to master Anna Ferris's voice. Let me see if I can get it. Oh wow. <laughs> You have on the. Ma- have I done this before? On this podcast? I have. I have. Wow. No, she's real nice. Like, she's just so, like, breathy. And, like, the thing is that I like about Anna Ferris is even when she's not, like, trying to do comedy, she still naturally just has that, like, factor about her that's just like, okay. Like, she's just, I don't know. She's always quirky. There's always a quirkiness to her, even in her most serious roles, that that helps her stand out. And it's these moments that does make her rise above the rest of the cast. Because truthfully, Janelle, when you, when you think about it, Janelle almost feels like she was written in last minute. Like Janelle does not have much of a purpose at all, but because she's so endearing and so fun in this role, she does absolutely stand out in these scenes. I definitely feel that. I feel like maybe like the filmmakers had this film cast. There was no Janelle character in the original script. And somehow some, cause uh, Anna Ferris, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong. I could look it up, but I don't, I'm not going to them. I think she is from, Washington is she from Seattle I think she's from Seattle here I'm I'm doing a, a little bit of in real time research because I don't like to be wrong and I don't want somebody to come for me and be like now she's from Kentucky I don't fucking know oh she was she's born in Baltimore Maryland but but she grew up in Edmonds Washington Roger okay so this makes sense because this film was filmed in Washington heavily Washington cast I feel like the filmmakers are from Washington. So I guarantee you like they saw Anna Ferris perform like at a local play or something like we have to get this girl in this film. Yeah. And they just like created this Janelle character just for Anna Ferris to play because you're right. There's really no purpose for her to be in this film. Like she's kind of like the eye duck out because she really doesn't have like a, a date that she's going to lover's lane with. Uh, she feigned some interest in Michael, but I guarantee you that that they came across Anna Ferris, or she, it was a late audition or something. Like, goddamn, we have to have her. I honestly feel like that might have been the case because, really, when you like look at at overall, like how she influences the story, she could have easily been written out. You know, so I I, I almost feel like they they found a way to piece her into it. Like even the moment where she introduced herself to Mandy, like when I mentioned how the, the dialogue felt really stiff and it literally feels like that could have just been a moment of Chloe walking into the room and pushing him into the pool. And they added that little moment in with her. And I was really thinking like, did they just add this so that she could have this extra kind of moment? Cause other than that, she serves no purpose to the story at all. She's just really fun. 
And I feel like they had this cheerleading outfit laying around and, you know, they didn't want to spend the extra money on a costume for it. And they're like, here, just throw this on and wear this, <laughs> wear this the whole movie. We'll just say you're a cheerleader. I, yeah, it's, it's real odd, but I'm glad Roger, I'm glad she's in the film because she is one of the best things about it. She is definitely natural, charismatic. She gets p- perhaps the, the best death scene, even though it's the most undeserved and cruelest death scene of the film. I don't even get me started on that when we get there. But yeah, so Dougie tells the group that the hook is out and that he left a note at the asylum saying that he was going to meet them at the kegger tonight. Wah, wah, wah. He's just joking. But poor Mandy is listening to this. And, you know, her mother was killed by this guy. So obviously she is not too kind to him joking around about it in such a public way. Now, this scene, Roger, this scene coming up at the triple X root beer stand where one of the deputies is watching Chloe and Brad make out. Now, now Chloe has, even though she's, you know, attacked Michael for breaking up. Now she's totally into Bradley. I can see why, but you, it's revealed through this right now that Bradley knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted some of this Chloe puss. And that's why he caused the whole, Tension between Michael and Chloe. He knew what he was doing. But now Chloe is all over him in this restaurant. She is literally on top of him, riding him. Like, I mean, they are making out hot and heavy. This deputy is over there licking his lips, almost orgasming him himself. When the sheriff shows up, keep in mind, Sheriff Tom, Chloe is his niece, right? Well, first of all, I'm sorry. If I was if that was my niece. And I walked into a fucking root public root beer stand. I would be over there at that table being like, uh, no, you get your ass off him. And get the hell out of here. You are not embarrassing me. He, they both are like watching her and the deputy is like, oh, I wish I was her dad. And Tom's like, well, why do you wish you were, you were Jack? Oh, because I could bank her when she got home. He is, this girl is 17 years old. This is problematic. This deputy is oogling and orgasming and sexually thinking about getting aroused by a 17 year old girl. I feel like, and the sheriff is right there. I feel like this is super problematic. Super problematic. And you know who I fucking feel bad for? The couple sitting directly next to Chloe and Bradley, because there is a pleasant couple sitting there trying to order their meal. And literally, Chloe is mounting atop this man, sucking his face off. And even even Bradley looks like, oh, my God, like this is way more than I signed up for. Like she looks like she's about to eat his fucking face off. Uh, And it is very uncomfortable. This whole character of this like deputy um also feels very useless and yes very skeezy which i guess like makes sense because he is like a day player as you will come to find out um but what really stands out here is the relationship and the overall approach that the sheriff has when he walks into the scenario because you're right again this would be his niece and that fact aside like this kind of public display of indecency like i'm sorry but if i was sitting in that restaurant i would be like uh sheriff can you have those two fucking sluts removed like i'm trying to eat my goddamn waffles over here right in front of my salad absolutely not uh but that fucking that deputy seems all about it and if that's the kind of law that they have in this small bumfuck town i mean i would be worried no wonder so much shit has gone awry here (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's baffling that the sheriff is just allowing this deputy to to literally oogle his his seventeen year old niece. Uh, but uh, as he's leaving, Tom gets up and he just leaves. He le- actually leaves leaves the deputy there to oogle now with this poor waitress who has to bend over and pick something up. This everyone is so fucking hoardy in this film, including the adult deputies. I mean, this guy is is ready to just shoot his load right there in the fucking restaurant watching. Mandy and are watching Chloe and watching this poor waitress just doing her goddamn job. But uh, outside he runs into Mandy who now says so she leaves the bowling alley to come to the root beer stand to study. I don't know, Mandy, make up your fucking mind. But as she's there, the group shows up and they make some mean comments about Mandy. And that's when Janelle's like, I don't know why you're so mean to her. She's really nice. They're just being cunts. I Everybody in this film is a fucking cunt. To a certain extent. I mean, there's a lot of... We talked earlier about how endearing and charming some of these characters are. No. Upon upon further analysis, these people are all kind of shitty. Like, they're all doing shitty things. Say, aside from poor Janelle, only one is being nice to people. And she gets the worst of it for being the nice one. She definitely does. Yeah. At Michael's house, he overhears his mom talking on the phone with her mom about being like worried and his mom's like, no, no, he's not going to come here. He's probably long gone. He's probably long gone back as at the bowling alley, Roger Dougie, who, again, we don't get much from Dougie. He's supposed to be like the jokester of the group. He's, he's, he, you know, he's the, he's the heavier set kind of jokester, uh, clown kind of sidekick. Again, talk about horny. He's so horny, Roger, that he goes into the bathroom and proceeds to masturbate to a picture of somebody. He is literally just going to town. If we're going to talk about scenes that are shoehorned into a movie, I cannot understand where this idea came from uh, to get this kid in this room and have him start just jacking off. I'm sorry. Like, I get it. I've been, I've been <laughs> 17, 18, 19, and I've had hormones racing. And sure, like, I've, listen, in some, some weird environments, but in this active, active bowling alley, um, with what appears to be one stall bathroom, like this, I'm sorry, this is just not the time nor the place. Like, this isn't the time. And clearly that door doesn't even lock because that fucking Chloe just sashays right in and, looks down on them but who the fuck thought okay we need to get him out of this scene what's our motivation someone's like have him jack off have him just have him just go jack off and they're like yep imagine being that actor being like oh i have a jack off scene and they're like yeah yeah absolutely he's like where and you're like well when you're you're at the bowling alley and he's like at the bowling alley like (laughs) is it is there something that causes me to get aroused no you got a picture in your pocket of a woman Uh, (laughs) like i'm just ready to go like okay like it's not like someone it's not like there's a moment that's placed in the script where i don't know like janelle like is like yeah yeah look at my boobs like i'm trying to say like but but it's not like there's a moment where she like turns him on he's like i gotta go bust a nut no he just (laughs) he just waddles into the bathroom and drops his drawers and he immediately is like oh yeah i'm ready to jack off on this shitter And that that blood busts in there and ruins the moment for the poor guy. I mean, I feel bad for him. <laughs> yeah, Chloe looking over looking over the stall at him, and uh, she's like, "Don't worry, I don't, I'm not interested in what you're doing. I just need you to make sure that Michael finds me and Bradley at Lovers Lane later." Like, what a specific instruction 
to grant like i would you would you not ask more questions like well why am i going up there and she does she does threaten him doesn't she what does she say i don't know if she threatens him i can't remember specifically what she says i just know that she says make sure make sure michael finds me and bradley at uh lover's lane and maybe he does like rebuff and, she, and she's like or i'll tell everybody that you're i don't know maybe she threatens to tell everybody that she caught him jacking off in the bathroom I mean, I don't even know. I can't remember. I would think that if I was his friend, Mel, because again, shitty people doing shitty things. First Bradley, now you've got fucking Dougie. And she's just like, yep, make sure he gets to Lover's Lane. He's like, all right, let me just finish jacking off and then I'll fucking drive him on up there. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just would, I guess I would want a little more like, a little bit of more fight from him, a little more questioning her. Like, I mean, she's been a fucking bitch this whole time. Like, wouldn't you be like, why? Why now? Why are you asking something of me now, you heinous bitch? Yeah. Well, Brad is leaving the bowling alley or the restaurant, wherever the fuck they are. I can't keep track. And he runs into Tim, who's sitting on his car. And at, Tim Tim does ask him, what the fuck are you doing? Like with Chloe. That's Michael's girl. And Bradley smugly says, where he just went, he's like, not anymore. Like, fuck you. Oh, my God. Yeah, so shitty, man. Like, how did Bradley get so shitty? I don't know because Michael seems like he's a good guy. Like Jen, he's boring as fuck, but he does seem like he's a nice, good guy. Like, why are you? Why are you? Because you want? Like, why would you want Chloe knowing what a fucking nutcase she is, knowing what she's done to your supposedly good friend Michael and how she's acted in the relationship and been a fucking nutcase? Now, why would you want to fuck her? Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. He's just a shitty person. Uh, so Doug, Dougie is done. I'm assuming he's done masturbating. He's yeah, it just ooh, he's probably he's probably all coming and come on his shirt and everything. Who knows? But he sits next to Mandy because you know she's now that she's studying in the bowling alley or she's wherever this is. Uh, and she he sits down next to her and asks Mandy to be his date. And she's like, "Well, what do you, what do you what do you mean?" He's like, "I made a bet that I'll had, that I would have a date tonight, and be honest, you haven't been asked out for ever." So it would actually be the to benefit both of us because it would bump your popularity up a bit and it would make me again win this bet. If I were her, dude, I would immediately be like, absolutely fucking not. Absolutely not. Like, not only do we not get along for like whatever the reasons may be. I mean, I guess it makes sense. But clearly there's a rift between our families. But now on top of that, you're just going to pop in out of nowhere and ask me to be your date, but only so you can use me to win a bet? Like, have a little, have a little pride, girl. Love yourself a little bit, Mandy. Because really, like, this is, this makes Michael look kind of crummy, uh, the way he handles this. I mean, I guess I appreciate that he's just straightforward with her, being like, hey, I just need a date to win a bet. Like, I mean, there is no romantic chemistry between these two. I do like that. It's not like they're two lovebirds who are looking to survive the night. These are just two random, you know, co people who have a, a unique backstory um, and, and really nothing more other than this awkward situation that's kind of brought them together, but they are not sexually attracted to each other at all. Um, and I like that that doesn't get thrown into the, the crosshairs, you know? Yeah. Well, she agrees. I mean, I don't know. A girl must have low self-esteem to agree to, to be the date of somebody that was just jerking off in the bathroom stall. But Hey, Mandy, at least it gets her. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like it's another puzzling thing about this film is like why she would agree to to do to do it. Even 
but it does put her then at the center of with with the main group. But yeah, it is one of the the big questions of the film is why she would agree to be uh, Dougie's date. I guess it's hinted at that she has low self-esteem because when he asks her, when's the last time you were asked out? She kind of looks down. I don't know. I feel, girl, she just must want to get out of that house, you know, pretty damn bad on Valentine's night. I had said, Michael, I had meant to say Dougie. Um, and I did get like my two comments kind of mixed together because I was intentionally trying to explain one thing. I was a little bit off because Dougie asks her, there's not any real relationship between the two of them. He's very transparent. Overall, Dougie's not portrayed as a really negative character. He's reasonably likable, even in that he agrees to help Chloe. He's still like part of the group. He doesn't seem to be all that shitty. Um, and, you know, and, and there's not any kind of spark or chemistry between the two of them. And the same thing with Michael. That's kind of what I was saying with the, the overall uh, relationship that Mandy has with all of the male characters. Like she could have had like a Sydney Prescott-esque structured relationship with one of these guys or a fledgling romance. They could have tried to kind of force that into the story for her. Um, I really just like the fact that she doesn't have any romantic ties to any of the guys at all. Dougie or Michael, any of the guys, she's kind of just on her own. And that does make her seem a little more independent, I guess. Yeah. And I, I do like that. I do. I do like that her relationship with Michael definitely evolves by the end of the film where I don't think it's romantic by any means, but they become protective of each other. Um, I think it's more along the lines of a, uh, just like a strong friendship. They've, they're experiencing this trauma together. So they do kind of bond and you can imagine it by the end of the film that they are going to be important parts of each other's lives, not in a romantic way. So now we cut to Michael. He's in bed. His mom comes in to say good night to him. And he asks his mom blatantly, is there something going on I should know about? And she's like, yeah, you know, Michael, there's something I should have told you about your father a long time ago. And, and Michael gets this big beaming smile on his face. His eyes light up literally and she recognizes this and you can tell she just she just cannot bring herself to say anything negative about his father. So all she says is, he would have been really proud of you. And he's like, oh, thank you. And she says goodnight and leaves the room and he immediately gets out of bed, fully dressed, and fucking jumps out the window. The wig's been distracting up to this point, but boy, oh boy, when that hair comes down. <laughs> just, just know it, guys. Get prepared. This wig is, it's bad. It's real bad. Chloe uh, makes Brad stop at a gas station for some reason. Um, and she goes inside and she says, hey, how, how's it going to the clerk? And we immediately see that the clerk is dead on the ground being dragged by someone wearing the Milton State Hospital jumpsuit. And we're like, oh, shit. Well, Chloe, what is she going to do? She like goes in to use the bathroom. Like it's just kind of just disappears. Uh, I think honestly what happens, and, and I, I really had to rewatch through this moment because this is a sequence that is it's kind of clunky in its edit, and I don't think it's totally clear what it's trying to explain. But um, a few things. I think when Chloe walks in, I think that's Ray, and I really like that body reveal. I think that this moment, we are actually seeing Ray um, having killed this, this guy in this shop. So I think that that... Uh, is a really cool little moment when she walks by and you see him stand up with the clerk and you see the clerk's dead body there. I really like that. Um, and I think what she does is I think she is trying to lose the deputy. So she goes in there. She goes through 
the whole building, she goes into that office and she climbs out the window. And that's why when the, the deputy comes in later, she's really, her goal was to get him to follow her so they have time to drive away so the deputy doesn't track them. She's trying to lose him, which I thought was pretty smart. But when the deputy goes in there, I think the way they, they kind of cut and edited that sequence that's coming up here in a little bit um, does not make that very clear for the viewer. No, that's not very clear at all, honestly, because I've seen this movie how many times and I've never even thought about that. <laughs> um, I thought maybe she went in to use the bathroom and it's just the fact that they didn't, they didn't get footage to show her doing that or coming out. So it's just assumed because she does. Yeah, she does end up back in Brad's car. But I guess go backtracking. Yes, the deputy, the one that was orgasming, getting erect watching her uh, earlier in the root beer store, he is on the he's supposed to be trailing chloe to keep an eye on her because the sheriff asked him to because he knows that this ray escaped and he's afraid ray might come after chloe so the deputy seeing chloe go in this gas station he goes in himself and she's not in there and he's going through like a back room he's looking around he comes up he comes across like that open like window and he he sticks his head through and he's a he is immediately hooked like it doesn't show anything but he's pulled up through the window and we kind of get this uh you know cool uh, sound effect of him like gurgling as he's being hooked through the I'm imagining like the throat and his legs are kicking and twitching and then we get the the shot of him just still just hanging out of that window it's kind of effective um, there's not a lot of we got to admit uh, put out that there's not a lot of gore in this film really not a lot of blood in this film either there's really not there's really not no, and there's not a lot of true suspense either i think there's some times they're trying to achieve suspense um there are times that they hit there's some times that they don't um i do think this moment is somewhat effective this whole moment with the deputy with the flashlight um but it, it he's really playing it big and he's immediately like chloe chloe like dude like okay you're just following this chick like you don't i mean you don't really necessarily think anything's up something is up like there is an actual killer obviously but it, it for him to be reacting this way doesn't technically make sense to me because right now like they're not suspecting anything you know so he walks into this room it's pretty dramatic you know but it's shadowed it, it's moody um and then this kill happens and again the way they filmed it I don't think they make it clear. I think, you know, I think what she did is she opened the window and she climbed out and she ran around to the back. And that's why you see him drive around. You see Bradley drive around the back because he has to wait a minute for her to get back there because she says, come in back and pick me up. So what she's doing is she's sneaking out the back. They're driving away. The cop is going in there to think that because he thinks that he left her. So he's going in to check on her. And when he goes in there, he gets killed by the killer, um, by Ray. Um, and it's a cool setup. It's just, yeah, that kill, man. I was like, wow. Even just to cut to the exterior to show the hook go into the temple or something. It could have used something because it's just hard to tell what's happening. It's, like I said, it's moody. It's effective. But it could have been something way bigger. Uh, it feels a little lackluster. Yeah, with a bigger budget, uh, I'm assuming they would have gone a little bit more hardcore with the effects. But as they are now, again, this film is kind of bloodless and really goreless. I mean, there's a, some implied horrible deaths, but there's nothing like in your face, bloody or gory. And we do get the shot of like the Ray character and the jumpsuit getting into the deputy's truck and driving away with it. Uh, and then we see Penny. We go back to Penny's house where she goes back into Michael's room because she's going to tell him something about her fa about his father, but she finds him missing. And at the same moment, we cut to Doug pulling up with the rest of the group in his car to pick up Michael, who is, again, 
snuck out of his house and is waiting for the group. He sees Mandy in the back seat and he's immediately like, what the, what is she doing here? And Doug's like, Oh, she's my date. And he, he doesn't want to go. He's like, Oh, nope. Sorry. I'm, I'm not going to go. And Janelle and the others really convince him to, to get in and stay. Uh, I mean, all we're given between the Mandy and the, um, Michael character for their hostility is the fact that their parents were killed together, but that's seems like, I don't know. I don't feel like that's a strong enough reason for two of these teenagers to hate each other so bad. I wish that was explored a little bit more. Or there was some dialogue about why specifically they don't like each other to the point where he wouldn't even go out with his friends on Valentine's day night because of her. I guess I would just expect, or I would hope that, if anything, like a situation like that, like I'm not saying I would anticipate it to bring them closer, but like, I guess maybe I am like for them to hate each other seems really, I guess a bit irrational. Now they are supposed to be teenagers again. So maybe they're just kind of going through their own, you know, youthful approach to this kind of resentment that they hold against their parents. So they put the blame on the other family, but it's, it's not explored enough to explain it. Because uh, there's something interesting there in that dynamic. It just it's just kind of given to us at surface level. Yeah, yeah. It's a, again, it's a dynamic that I really don't understand. Um, Chloe and Brad are now at Lovers Lane, and they are making out hot and heavy. I mean, they're kissing, rubbing all over each other. You can hear her like trying to unzip his pants, and again, in a in a in a manner that kind of subverts your expectations. Because remember. Bradley apparently wants Chloe so fucking bad that he's going to ruin his friendship and her relationship with Michael. But then like as she's unzipping his pants and it really is going to like go there. He's like, no, no, I can't. I can't. I don't want to. She's like, uh, do I need to remind you? Uh, I'm the best piece of ass in town. Do you want me to tell everyone that you are just another loser with a limp dick? This girl. But uh, what? I don't understand this sudden shift in the Bradley character from wanting Chloe so fucking bad that he's going to be a conniving asshole to then getting her and seconds away from being able to fuck her. He's like, Oh no, I can't No, Don't tell me that he's don't give me that. Oh, he might be a virgin. He does no, because if that was the case, he would not have done what he did. And he certainly wouldn't be in lover's lane with her. Well, and then Troy, I mean, to top it all off, there was a part of me that was thinking, well, I wonder like, is this maybe going to be implied like this guy's gay or something? And it's not. But she does, Chloe does, however, uh, kind of rebuke him with the choice term of saying, uh, uh, fuck me or I'll tell everyone that you have a limp dick, you faggot. Isn't that what she says? No, she does. She does say that, she, he, oh, are you just another big mouth with a limp dick? They, so he's, they start going at it again and she starts to take her top off and then they hear a noise outside and he's like, no, we're leaving. And she says, no, you're going to fuck me or I'm going to kill your faggot ass. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, it was very much more offensive than what I remember. Uh, yeah, no, she literally threatens to kill his faggot ass. And, and, um, I, I really kind of took my breath away when I heard it because there have been many films that we've discussed and then we've analyzed that um i think i think maybe sometimes the gays are a little like oh dear like up in arms about it but like this is one of the most scathing hostile usages of the term faggot i've heard in a while um and again it's an actress who's it's 1999 she's being told to say a line i get it but like 
holy shit, this did not hold up well. This usage of the term, I know they're trying to paint her to be negative. Um, it it helps, but you this usage of the term faggot really um, ooh, it's a tough pill to swallow for me. I thought it was actually rather shocking. Well, it's 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 used in the it's used in the in the in the the sense that she is saying that oh you don't want to have sex with me then you surely must be gay you know it's 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 sort of that kind of offensive manner in which the the word is being used it's not like it's not Kelly Rowland calling Freddie a faggot this is a very scathing like she is using it to humiliate him you know to the point of oh you don't want to have sex with me you're you're obviously gay you're a faggot i mean it is quite one of the, you're you're right it's quite it's one of the more derogatory like uses of the word i've heard in a film in quite some time um but you know again i chalk it up to i'm not going to be offended by it i'm not going to be like oh boycott lovers lane oh boycott the actress oh boy i mean it's 1999 that's not an excuse but again it's a different time you got to look at things sometimes at the lens of, of when they when they, when it came out and unfortunately uh that word was not as frowned upon as it is now, thank God it's frowned upon now. Thank God we don't hear it in a lot of films anymore. But it doesn't really cloud my specific judgment of this film. What it does do is just make me hate the Claire, the Chloe character even more. Yeah, definitely, and it is it is successful in doing that. I guess it's just one of those things you don't hear it that much anymore, especially with such hate behind it. Um, so yeah, my how things have changed, I guess. I mean, because she does spit that out very hostile and it's kind of a, it's kind of an ironic thing she says honestly when when all's revealed at the end of the film like you realize she's actually was kind of serious so penny shows up to the police station to report that michael's missing um tom is surprised that she's there and she's like well where else could i go i mean i don't you're the sheriff so he puts out um, a bulletin for Michael and then he tells her, you know, I want you to get, I, I want us to get past this animosity. You know, Ward was cheating on you and Harriet was cheating on me and we just need to accept it. And she's like, no, Ward was not cheating on me. And if we don't do something this time, it'll be our kids. He's like, oh, you don't want to talk about it. She's like, well, where's Mandy? Call her. And he calls Mandy, of course, and gets no answer. So it does kind of rouse a little bit of concern in him that his good girl Mandy is not home. So now, finally, Roger, finally, after all this bullshit we've seen, the group shows up to Lover's Lane. Mar- Michael sees Brad's car. It's like, what is that doing there? And Doug's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe we should go around, you know, check and see what they're doing. So they get out of uh, Doug and Tim get out of the car and Janelle does take this very blatant moment to ask Michael, do you still like Chloe? And he's like, no, I don't know. And she's like, yeah, you do. She's a bitch, but it's nice that you still care. Uh, And then Mandy's like over it. She's like, this is stupid. I just want to go home. And Kathy, it's fucking Kathy. We have to remember Kathy's here because she's the most forgettable character in slasher movie history. She's like, oh, the lesbo librarian speaks. So what I'm gathering from these filmmakers, Roger, is that using gay slurs are their way to make their bitchy female characters insult another character. It feels like Eli Roth with a lower budget. Um, but um, yeah, you know, I, Kathy and Tim are, are both definitely the most underwritten characters in the film. 
at least Tim has this little moment here where they're kind of they're razzing the kids. You know, they come back and they pretend that they've been stabbed, and it was it ends up being ketchup. And so there's this little moment here where you're going to give Tim a little bit of focus. But my gosh, he's going to die very soon. Um, and this this whole bit here coming up with the kind of reveal of what's happening. One thing I kind of notice with the film is there are moments in the film where they spend a lot of time really focusing on things and giving things a lot of attention. And there's other key moments, oftentimes moments of revelations or, you know, honestly reveals oftentimes involving scares um, that they seem to kind of just like skim right through it or really kind of fly through the moment. Um, they choose to not show a lot of things happen. Things happen off camera. People scream and get disappeared. People get stabbed and show up, um, you know, and so it, it, it's, it makes for kind of like a clunky execution, this whole bit here. It's a fun scene, what's happening, what's about to transpire, but it has its fair share of hiccups. Yeah, this isn't executed very well. I'll give you that. Uh, because after the little um, catch-up prank, the the group, they decide they're going to sneak back to Brad's car to scare him. And as they get to the car, they find Brad and Chloe propped up against the front of the car, all bloody. And of course, they think it's a joke at first. Tim and Dougie think it's a joke. And they're like, hey, guys, come on. This isn't funny. When all of a sudden, the hook killer shows up just out of the blue and hooks Tim. Of course, we don't see it. We just see the hook rays and like Tim's body fall to the ground and blood splatter. Kathy is, is walking up right when this happens. And so she, Doug takes off running. He's like, go, go, go. There's actually a killer here. And they run back to the car. Tellers everyone to get in. This is when the killer slams Tim against the window. Uh, Janelle screams. Doug is able to get into the car and literally drives off going 200 miles an hour, freaking out. Again, remember, this isn't a robe. This is like a field. So as the others are screaming at him to slow down, he goes into a ditch and crashes the fucking car. This all happens really quick. Like this, this is what kicks the film into motion. And this happens really fast. Happens really fast. And and you do like, you don't really see a ton of it. It's very dark. Um, I do want to acknowledge, you know, the, the cut I saw, the copy I saw was online. I know there's this remaster recently uh, that I haven't seen yet. I'm, I'm hoping that the quality has been enhanced. I've heard it's beautiful. The cover art's lovely. But there's a lot of things you lose in the muddiness of the, the dark sequences. And again, like some of these things are just really rushed through. Like the whole reveal of Tim actually being deceased. I also found it very awkward that they just show up and that Chloe and Bradley are propped against the vehicle. And, and it makes sense in the long run, but... Again, for these to be what feels like two major characters, for ha- for that to be the reveal felt very like almost like PG-13. Like, okay, we're going to choose not to show anything at all. Now, it makes sense when it all con- kind of finalizes, but getting to that, you know, your first time viewing this especially, it, it feels like a bit of a letdown in the way that they're just like propped up against the vehicle and these two characters just like stumble upon them and they're not even startled. They think it's part of the joke, like they've just been playing. So the scare factor just kind of gets leached out of what could be a really intense moment. It kind of just isn't scary. The whole chase to the car, I think is really fun. Them getting the car and driving away is fun, but yeah, I don't know. I I think that they kind of missed the mark with a few of these things that were revealed here. Yeah. Well, we do think that 
we do think that Bradley and Chloe are dead, right? Because Bradley has a big old gash across his throat. So he's definitely dead. And Chloe's covered in blood. It's hard to see, but she looks, they both look dead. But yeah, just a, a really awkward reveal, particularly for a character like Chloe, who is so far has kind of been a prominent force in the film, just to have her death revealed in this manner, so to speak, was quite a letdown. And then just everything goes so frantic because once they crash the car, they get out. Doug is hurt. We find out his leg is broken. Michael tells uh, Janelle to to help Dougie to this farmhouse that they're by. Kathy, her dumbass, gets off, gets out, and just runs into the woods as Michael's trying to find a flashlight. And there's this horrible piece of dialogue where Mandy's like, come on, Michael, come on, just leave the flashlight. He's like, no, it's all we got. I'm like, what? This feels like another moment that's completely undershot because they do this whole thing where Kathy runs off and they hear a disembodied scream. The car's crashed into a ditch. It's this one long angle and Michael's just spewing off dialogue and like he kind of instructs people to start going towards this house nearby. And so they they remain on the shot. They choose to not like cut away to different angles of people running into the woods or anything. It's just this long drawn out shot. So like Kathy just kind of like disappears from the shot. And then all of a sudden you hear a scream and you're like, I guess that's Kathy, but it could also be Janelle. Like, I'm not sure. It's very unclear what's happening. And I think they're trying to play into that because it's supposed to be a surprise what happens. But again, first time viewer scene feels really lackluster it feels like these kids are just like improvising this dialogue like it's really obnoxious dialogue about the flashlight and like they can't cut away to anything so they just keep focusing on this really long shot and it just it just feels very amateur this is where that indie bleeds through quite a bit uh still charming still endearing but it's just not necessarily great I think that's a good word. Amateur. Definitely some amateur streaks that run through this film. And yeah, I am definitely not a fan of any film that would that kills off a character by just having them run off and then we hear them scream. I mean, she does come back, but I mean, yeah, that's just pretty much what we get from Kathy. Her running away from the group only to hear her scream. And like you said, initially, we don't know if it's her. We don't know if it's Janelle. We don't know what the hell's going on. Now, we cut back to the bowling alley where Tom and Penny... Uh, are looking for Michael and they approach this drunk couple. This girl specifically is plastered and they're asking where Michael is. And the guy's like, how would I know? I don't know. And the, the, uh, the sheriff's like, you better tell me or I'll, uh, I can take you in right now. How much, what, what, what substances do you think I find on you? He's like, no, I seriously don't know. And the girl's like, Oh, they're probably with Tim lovers lane. But you guys better wait because Michael's probably getting laid right now. And Penny, keep in mind, Roger, principal of the high school in town, hauls off and punches this teenage girl right in the face. This is problematic as well. I feel like she would lose her job. Truly problematic. And what what's more is I can't tell, but I'm assuming based off of the fact that they know these other students, even though these people look like they're 30, I'm thinking they're also high school students. Um, this guy, Arnold, he literally looks like a, like someone's father that they pulled in off the street. But yeah, they're high school students, and, and Penny Penny is, <laughs> is, is punching them. I gotta say, real quick, I, listen, I just need you all to know. So my, my family has a Chihuahua pug mix. Her name is Penny, but her name is 
Her nickname is Penny Penny Puss Lips. <laughs> and I keep wanting to say Penny Penny Puss Lips, but I'm not going to. Penny Penny Puss Lips. For the, <laughs> For the rest of the episode, you're referring to her as Penny Penny Puss Lips. If you don't, I'm going to be. <laughs> so Penny Penny Puss Lips is, just goes off and punches this student. And again, in, t- in 2024, I mean, this this woman would be in prison, but here it seems fine. I mean, she's hanging out with the sheriff. They're they're smirking about it after the fact, and this and this girl, at least this girl, kind of like laughs it off because she's so drunk. But like, she just got assaulted by the fucking principal. Shit's about to go down. Like, I give me a sequel to Lovers Lane: The Aftermath, like where like Penny Penny Pusslips is going to court because this girl is suing her for assaulting her at a bowling alley. I'll watch that sequel. Uh, I will. I'll watch any sequel called Penny Penny Puss Lips. Trust me. <laughs> okay. So Me too, Troy. <laughs> Michael and Mandy run to the farmhouse and go inside. He conveniently finds a shotgun, but it only has two shells. So they're roaming around this house. They hear something. His response is to immediately fucking pull the trigger. Luckily, he's a terrible aim because it's Janelle and Doug who are hiding behind the fucking sofa. He literally almost blows Janelle's head off. <laughs> I mean, might as well at this point because I love her, but she's really serving limited purpose moving forward. Um, but yeah, and yeah, you're right. This one bullet gone, one more left. I mean, this is the most useless weapon I've ever seen utilized in a horror movie. These fuckers really sure waste the opportunity to utilize this gun uh i don't know maybe someone just had one laying around at their disposal uh but yeah so he just blasts a hole in the ceiling so that makes it pointless he's gonna waste the other one too here in a moment just you watch and see besides being a a, a studious student who studies at the bowling alley and at the local root beer parlor roger mandy is also apparently an er nurse because dougie has broken his leg and she I mean, she beckons into action. She knows exactly what to do. She gets him up on the table. She <laughs> sets his bone. I mean, she's like, oh, we got to set the bone. We got to set the bone. Give him something to squeeze. And Doug is like freaking out, obviously, because your leg is broken. You don't want him to be touching. He's like, don't touch my fucking leg. Don't touch my fucking leg. And she tells Janelle, distract him, distract him. And Jill's like, how? I don't know how. And, she's, and Janelle says, who's your favorite teacher? He's like, what? Fuck you. Don't touch my leg. And Mandy is just distract him. So Janelle lifts up her top to show him her titties. We don't see it because it's lovely Anna Ferris, but apparently that, that distracts him long enough for Mandy to yank his fucking leg back into place and, and, and set the bone. Uh, how did this g- girl, mousy looking girl know how to do this? The only rationale I can possibly provide here is that because her father is, a police officer, like maybe she's had some like training with like basic survival. It's certainly not explored at all, nor does it seem in any way appropriate for her character to suddenly be able to just spring into action. But I will say like, this is the one moment where her character does kind of like rise up a bit, which makes her then decline over the rest of the film, uh, all the more miserable because for a second she's, yeah, she's grabbing the bull by the horns. She's, fucking uh, uh, fixing legs and <laughs> spitting <laughs> orders and, 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 uh, and you know really really like taking charge for a minute and my god does she lose control after this because it's just a fleeting moment before she becomes a blubbering mess well 
Yes, because after they set his leg, Mandy tells Janelle that her and Michael are going to go to the barn to look for a car. She begs them not to go. She's like, please don't leave me. And this is when he she tells Janelle, she's like, he is not going to come after you because he's after Michael and me. And Michael starts, Michael's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, why would he be after us? And she says, because what he did to our mom and your dad, he killed them. And he's like, no, my dad had a heart attack. And she is like, oh, Michael, you don't know. She has to like reveal to Michael, be the one to tell Michael that his dad was was really murdered and that she knows for a fact because she saw it. She saw the bodies. She was there at the beginning of the film. She knows what went down. And he is like, fuck you. Fuck you. So this makes me question even more. Like, I guess, I don't know. For her, like really understanding just how severe this is. He's been lied to this whole time. So he does, I guess, apparently he does know about the affair. I'm assuming that the mom has shared that with him. But like at the end of the day, like the mom, when she had that scene with him earlier, like he... You know, he asked her to, to say, like, one positive thing, and she was like, yeah, your dad would have really loved you. So it seems like he overall still has, like, a somewhat of a positive, I don't want to say relationship with his dad, because obviously it's limited, but uh, remembered him fondly. So I guess I'm just confused, like, where his resentment is coming from. Like, her knowing that, like, they were massacred together, I think maybe adds a little more weight to it for her response. But for him, it just seems like this whole animosity, again, between these two characters up to this point, seems even that much more hollow. You get what I mean with that? I do, because he he would have no reason to dislike Mandy if he did not, if he doesn't know about anything that happened to his dad. I don't even think he knows about the affair because the mom, Penny denies the affair even happened. She's adamant that because remember when she goes to his, uh, to Sheriff Tom's office and he mentions it to her, she's like, no, they were not having an affair. So I don't even think she's told him that. So yes, I think it's, I think it's just a plot hole or just sloppy writing because there'd be no reason for, uh, Michael to dislike Mandy. Yeah, I think sloppy writing is is the is the key here because I think that while there have been some fun dialogue moments, I do think a lot of the developments and the core story arcs have oftentimes been underwritten here. Um, and so I do, I do think that this is something that maybe just like in many other aspects of the film, you know, the cinematography at times is is a little grainy and dark. You know, the editing at times is clunky and goes a frame too long. The audio very glitchy, lots of pops and crackles all throughout the film. And the script is not completely coherent and at times feels like they put the focus in the wrong areas. Um, But it's not so severe that it makes me hate this movie. It's just these little things that add up that, again, bring out the independent qualities in this film that are both a flaw, but also help add to the endearing qualities of what it is. Yeah, no, totally. I totally am on board with you. Uh, Tom, uh, Tom goes to Jack's house, his brother's house. Uh, he, he basically has to, he doesn't break in, but he goes inside. Jack's not home. He hears something inside and we, we see that it's a knife falling and hitting the floor, sticking straight up, which is why he decides to pursue going inside. And when he gets into the garage, he sees that the garage door, the wooden door that goes into the house has been hacked, basically hacked to pieces and is wide open. He goes inside, kind of explores this dark house for a little bit. We get a one of the cliched cat scares, the cat jumping out and meowing. And then as he's walking to the house, we do get this cool shot. We see Ray or the person in the jumpsuit kind of in the reflection behind him. 
in the kitchen. The stove is on. There is a note on the refrigerator written in blood that says again, Roger, prison food sucks. This is a, a trend. This is a trend. I'm really confused as to why it keeps coming up. I do understand that Ray has been sporadically actively killing people over the course of this film. We're going to have some big revelations here. I'm just curious as to how planned these revelations are. But right now, this whole prison food sucks thing is like the one loose string that I just can't I can't figure out how to tie it into the story. Does he really feel like prison food sucks? Is this why he broke out? Why is it relevant? Why does it keep coming back up? This is the second time he's painted it or pasted it or put it onto a wall somewhere. Uh, I just, I don't understand. And it really doesn't go anywhere beyond this. Well, he opens the refrigerator and he, Roger, he finds that poor Doberman Pincher's head in the refrigerator. This was Jack's guide dog or whatever, emotional support dog. His head has been chopped off and it's sitting in the refrigerator. For a relatively bloodless film, Troy, this was surprising. What's up with us watching so many movies with the fucking dogs involving dogs being massacred? Um, you know, we've had we we now have three prominent dog sequences in a row. We have we had two reviews ago. We had Slither with about thirty dogs getting killed. Then we had the Beyond where that dog eats that woman's throat out and rips it out and now we're here where this dog's just getting decapitated for no reason at all we barely even see the poor dog i forgot he was there i know poor thing right below the milk too uh, penny comes up behind him and scares him so and she they now realize seeing the dog had seen the note that definitely ray is out and after probably them and their children so Mike, Mandy and Mike go to the bar and they do find a car, but as they're heading to it out of the darkness, all of a sudden this fucking pig comes squealing at them. And what does Michael do? Shoots at it using the last gel of the shotgun. God damn it. Like at least use the shotgun against the killer. The fact that he never even gets to utilize the shotgun properly or involve it in defending him himself. Uh, why, why did they introduce the shotgun? Why did it come into play? What purpose did this serve? I'm, I'm very confused. Because he almost shot Babe, as Mandy says. And he just tosses it aside. It's, it's no longer utilized at all. They get into the car. There's no keys. Uh, he's going to have to uh, hotwire it. Mandy knows how to set broken bones. And Michael knows how to hotwire cars. Back in the house... Janelle is there, you know, with, with Doug, who's on the table, still passed out when she hears scraping on the wall and she of course freaks out. She hears it louder. So she grabs about five knives from the, from the kitchen block, holding them as awkwardly as possible. When all of a sudden the fucking killer bashes his hook through the window. She has a great scream. It's Anna Fair. She has a great scream. She runs upstairs, goes into a bedroom, blocks the door you know, with a, with a dresser and sitting on the edge of the bed, just freaked out when she looks over on the wall and the wall has been carved the word, the words die bitch. And then all of a sudden, slowly the camera goes down between her legs and we see the hook come out from under the bed and proceed to hook poor Anna Ferris in the vagina. Painful painful death. I got a few issues with this sequence. I got a couple of them. 
No, no, you we're on the same page. There's a lot of issues with this sequence. Well, first off, you know, we've been talking about the fact that it feels like Anna Faris's Janelle was really written into the script as they were going along and down to this last moment. Because technically, you could have removed this kill and it could have just led to the next sequence and it would have made sense. Um, but you've got this weird chase sequence where, you know, she's hearing these noises. You see the hook. It's scraping on paper. So this is implying to me that the hook is making these noises from inside. However, when the killer attacks her, it's coming from outside. Now, again, when we learn the final revelation of what's going, what the outcome is, I guess this technically could make sense. It could. I mean, when you think about it, there, there's multiple individuals at play here. Let's just get that out of the way. But still, it, it just feels very, very awkward. So she runs upstairs, pisses me off, um, and she hides in this room and she, you know, she barricades the door. She's sitting there. She's just cowering, holding a pillow as you do, I guess. I don't know. Not trying to actually do anything. And then the, the killer comes out from under the bed. So the only way that this really could be possibly explained is if both killers are at play here without being aware of it. I wonder, I'm curious if Ray is technically maybe upstairs. And then if whomever it is that appears alternate to this, which does make sense based off a line that somebody says later that they had to take care of Dougie. I, I wonder if this was genuinely meant to be played that, that this is two people killing two, two separate, two separate murders happening with two separate killers. I mean, I think you're on, you're onto something. There definitely has to be two, two, two people in the two killers in this particular scene. And it's either, you know, you can, you can pick the combination. I, we know for a fact who kills Janelle and who kills Dougie because she reveals it. You're right. A line that said at the end of the film, she says, I had to take care of Dougie and that slut Janelle. So we know who kills Janelle. Um, it's who the other one is. Is the other one Ray or is the other one the other killer? That's the, the big question. My question, moreover, is like, how would the killer who kills Janelle know that she was going to run up to that specific bedroom and sit on that specific bed? Yeah, because it's not like if, if there is a way that this killer managed to get upstairs, it, sh it certainly is not explained to us. It's not like, oh, there's a there's a hole in the floorboards he's coming through or I don't know, something, a trap door we have no idea. It's not explained. There's a lot of things here that aren't explained. It's also not explained how fucking Michael knows how to hotwire a car. That's something that they could have easily uh, brought up over the development of his character. You know, maybe made him a little bit of a punk, maybe given him a little bit of a rebellious streak, but nope, he just knows how to fucking hotwire a car. So same thing here. The killer just manages to get in the room. We don't know who it is. We don't know how they got in there. We don't know how they knew how to get there. They're just there waiting and the, because of that, poor Janelle gets this hook to the hoo-hoo, and you don't see it. She does give a great reaction, like Anna Ferris taking it to the very last frame, a pretty violent death, and it's unfortunate because she really is the most likable character. Um, so it feels like her, you know she goes out really in a very nasty, cruel way, um, and she just feels very undeserving of it. Yeah, that's something I've always thought about this particular death scene. I mean, it's it's a cool death scene. I mean, it's you don't see a lot of death scenes with you know, hooks and vaginas, although ironically we, we've covered another film with a hook in the vagina and that was the mutilator, but it is a extremely cruel, brutal, painful death. And they, they give it to Janelle, like the nicest character in the film. It's that's always, to be honest with you, always has rubbed me the wrong way. Always. 
that feels like a Kathy death to me. Like give Kathy the hook to the vagina, not not Janelle. Let her die elegantly. She wore that little cheerleader cheerleaders outfit up to the very end. Doug wakes up uh, on the table, and the killer is there, teasing him, rubbing the hook uh, on his crotch. While Doug is saying, "Oh come on, man! I just wanted to get laid. I didn't do nothing." And you know, Doug is just pleading for his life before the killer takes two large knives. Well, he stabs the first one through Doug's leg, which looks very painful. And the actor's reaction is pretty great. Uh, and then raises the other one and then it cuts away. And we do hear Doug's scream. I, I really feel like this Doug sequence also like was another moment that the actor didn't have a full grasp over exactly how they wanted to play the moment. Um, Dougie, like he's coming to, he's unconscious. So I get why he'd be a little bit out of it. But the way that they, they play it, it just feels like he's just very much underreacting. Like this killer shows up and he's like, oh, no, what are you doing here? What do you want? And they do film it very blurry. So they make it like it's very unclear who's looking down on him. But even when he starts getting stabbed, like he screams. But overall, he just seems very like, uh, like, I don't know. I would be flipping my shit if someone was stabbing me with fucking knives in my thighs. Like, yes, I know his, his legs broken. I know he's been knocked out, but still, like, I, I would just expect a little bit more of a reaction. So this moment feels a bit understated for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I sort of get it because he is still groggy. But yeah, he, it's very, I, you would expect a little bit of a bigger reaction from this character, knowing that this person is rubbing a hook over your crotch. And even when he, like, plants the knife through his leg, yeah, he has a pretty big scream, but... Still, after that, it's like, oh, but I mean, Dougie is a dispatchable character as well. I mean, he's I mean, his whole purpose in the film was to masturbate in a bowling alley. So I guess it's as good as we're going to get with him. So back in the bar, Michael has hotwired the car. The killer shows up just as he's trying to get the car started and they get in and they drive out of the barn when all of a sudden, like they see Kathy at the end of the barn door propped up with pitchforks and they actually like run her over. Now, this came out of fucking nowhere. I mean, poor Kathy, first of all, like literally just disappeared with a scream. And now she's just hanging up on this wall. Um, and I mean, it is dark. She's like, you know, she, she, they can't see the killer coming, but they know he's like approaching in the shadows. So when they turn on the lights, they just take off and and she just comes up in the headlights. And it's kind of cool, um, but it's so quick that you barely see it. Like you see her look up, her eyes go wide. She goes over the hood of the car. And then you get this awkward shot of, of the killer, which, you know, Ray or whoever the fuck it is at this point, standing there holding her body like limply in his arms, like just kind of propped up beside him, I guess to make it clear that it's Kathy. Cause I think it's such a fast shot that viewers may almost not even notice it, but yeah, it's, it's a really like quick, quick kill. Too fast. Like, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more about this useless character. At least if you're going to have a useless character, give her a big epic chase scene. Do something wild. Kill her violent. But she is gone. Just like in the blink of an eye, she's gone. Although, yeah. Although the the shot, the quick shot of the killer holding her up is pretty cool. They've used that for a lot of promotional material that I've noticed for the film. But yeah, otherwise you wouldn't have any idea who it was. Uh, basically, we're winding down. They go back to the house and find Doug dead. So Mandy, who has formed a bomb with Janelle, she wants to find Janelle. So she runs upstairs to look for Janelle. Unfortunately, finds Janelle's bloody body in the bedroom. 
calls Michael up to show him and, you know, they have this embrace and, and cries. And it's, as they're walking back down the stairs, all of a sudden the killer, like out of nowhere, busts through the, the glass, comes in and like grabs Mandy, throws her to the sofa. When Mike, uh, Michael's able to grab a golf club and hit him so fucking hard that he flies back out the window. And of course you get line drive, bitch. They go into the kitchen and shut the door and they barricade themselves in the kitchen as you know, the killer comes back in the house and is hooking his way through this kitchen door. And Michael instructs Mandy to find him matches. And in, in the meantime, he's trying to pull the gas stove away from the wall. And Mandy goes into the pantry and finds the owners of this house dead inside the pantry. Brief little shot. I wish we could have seen more of these two old fuckers getting killed. I could have used a few more deaths scattered here and there. But yeah, that's very disposable. They're just They're just tucked away in the pantry. No big deal. No big deal. Mandy does find some matches conveniently. And so Michael is able to like rig this thing with tape, with duct tape, uh, the gas from the stove and the matches where he tapes a match onto the door so that when it flings open, it's going to st- light again. These kids are fucking MacGyver, little MacGyvers and they're able to like, they run out of the, they jump out the window and run out the door. And of course the killer busts through the door and as he's looking around, he slams the door back shut and the match catches on the match pad and fucking this house goes up like and this house would not blow up this fast. I mean, the gas has only been pulled out for maybe 30 seconds, but this house goes up like it's a fucking ton, five tons of dynamite. It's, I don't know if they had stock footage of this and they're like, we have to use this house blowing up. I don't know if they blew up a real house. I don't know how, they, how they'd have a budget for that. But I mean, this explosion is over the top. Oh my God, this house explosion is so excessive. They must have had just a disposable house ready to go. Uh, but when you think about how extreme this explosion is, one of the, the things that's about to come up here in a minute seems highly unlikely. Um, <laughs> and again, very understated. Um, what One of these big reveals that's coming really comes out of nowhere just because I didn't think it was fucking physically possible that, uh, that a human could survive this. But uh, apparently someone does. Yeah, they get back in the car and drive down the road when they see something lying in the middle of the road and they stop at the same moment though, we have to cut because we cut back to Jack's house and this is important. Tom and Penny are searching Jack's house and Penny goes into the bedroom and you know, she notices that there's a bear in Jack's room that Michael gave to Chloe and upon further examination roger she finds a book about sexual deviance between fathers and daughters this is an unexpected turn yeah well not only that there's panties and birth control pills that chloe has uh yeah this is quite i mean we are definitely being fed the fact that Jack and Chloe are having a, a, a sexual relationship. Let's just put it out there. Oh my God. This is so much to process. Um, and it, it does make that whole moment with the, with the deputy earlier when he's like oogling over her. Um, and I wanted to say this earlier, but I was like, Ugh, I got to save this now because again, this is what we've been putting a pin in it. We've been putting a pin in it this whole time. Uh, this whole twist, uh, the whole like, incestual element up until this point 
I don't think there were really any hints that were being dropped that it was coming. I was not anticipating this at all upon my first viewing. Um, it's not like the relationship between Chloe and her father is really explored enough for this to make sense. Like they have that one scene in the principal's office where he's very defensive of her, but like he just seems like an asshole and does not really ever stray into this territory. So when this gets thrown into the mix, I mean, I'm sorry, but I was, I was, I was taken aback. Um, and it, it, it's, I guess it makes for a cool, shocking reveal. Um, but I don't know if I needed this. I don't know if I needed this to be part of the story. <laughs> it's quite the reveal, isn't it? It's quite a lot to process at the minute it hits at you that this is kind of what's going on. And this is why he has such a, you know, a steadfast protection of his daughter and, and why she's the way she is. Um, not only that is they find a shrine to Harriet in, in um, one of the rooms in Jack's house. We, we st- he has her picture. Harriet was sorry. Harriet, of course, was Tom's wife who was killed at the beginning along with uh, Ward. Harry, get it. Harriet Warden. You get that? Harry Warden. Kind of a nice little, little nod to my bloody Valentine there. Oh, but yeah. So, so there's all kinds of shit going on. Not only is Jack fucking his teenage daughter, he's also still infatuated with his brother's ex-dead wife. That really seems like quite a lot to be thrown at the audience in the sense of, you know, big reveals. And especially with Jack's character who has really kind of dropped off a bit. Like, I mean, you know, right now, the sheriff and, and Penny Penny Pusslips, they are at Jack's house. They are, are they not? They're over at Jack's house investigating. So at least you're starting to like get back into Jack's presence within the film and being explored and so forth. And so it's obviously building up to some big revelation. And, and there are a few cool moments where you see figures watching the sheriff uh, as he's moving through the house. So it is building up to something. Um, but up to this point, Jack has, has kind of dropped off, you know, like, um, I wish this character was maybe himself, like kind of building up to something bigger because now him coming back into the story, the way they reintroduce him into the story, like this, what's about to happen here with his character. Um, and, and this whole just reveal of him having this big incestual relationship with his daughter, it's just a lot to throw at this character. It's such a shift. It's such a change from everything up to this point. And it's really not, like you said, it's not, it's not dwelled on. There's no real elaboration on it. It's just throwing at us. And then, uh, because we're at the end of the film, uh, we are in the final, you know, 10 minutes of the film. So after we cut back to um, Michael and Manny driving, and this is when they see Chloe's body laying in the middle of the street. So they get out. She's still alive. You know, she's saying, help me, help me. I don't want to die. I'm so sorry. They get her back into the car. You know, and she is, she looks like she's, she's fucked up and, you know, she wants them to take her back. She wants them to take her back to Bradley because she tells them Bradley is still alive. You have to trust me, please. He's at lover's lane. So of course they drive back to lover's lane to where Bradley's car was. And immediately they hear a phone ringing. Mandy, of course, gets out of the car to answer the phone. And when she finds the phone, it's her dad, her dad, you know, and, and, Penny are not trying to call all of Michael's friends to find out where he's at. So they've called uh, 
Bradley's phone. Mandy answers, and Mandy is the the dad is like, "What the hell are you doing?" In the meantime, Chloe slowly pops up from the back seat with a hook. Mandy sees this and yells at Michael, and Chloe is like, "Nobody dumps me, you fuck!" And she actually swipes Michael across the face with this fucking hook. At the same time, a second killer jumps out of the fucking bushes and grabs Mandy and drags her to a fucking car. A lot's happening all at once. Um, and I got to give Chloe credit because she was sure faking, you know, being injured quite well. Um, though as soon as that they, as soon as they brought her back into the mix and, and had her, uh, you know, revealed to be alive, I knew I was like, okay, something's up because there's no way you're making a character that big of a bitch and bringing her back into the mix without there being some kind of some hidden uh, motive here. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's clear something's about to happen, but she's good enough at selling it. I'm like, is she really injured or is she faking it? She's faking it. And she's got a hook. There's two of those fucking hooks. Only one of those hooks was kept in that glass jar. Where'd the other hook come from? Thank God there's two hooks now because they're, they're both used, but like they just got extra hooks laying around, I guess. They do. There's hooks everywhere. Uh, basically, the killer that drags Mandy into the car and puts her in it with Bradley's dead body takes off his hood and reveals that it is. Dun, dun, dun. Jack with his burned face. At least they gave him, you know, <laughs> some burn effects on his face from being in a house that fucking blew up, blew up. They gave him burn effects, Troy, but they didn't give him any direction how to act like he's in pain because this man, for having survived a massive gas explosion in a, a house, it completely obliterated the house. The house is gone, and he was in that house. Somehow he survived, thank God. You know, by, by, by some means, this man managed to survive this massive explosion. And now he's showing up. His face is literally melted. I mean, his face, his body, he is completely just burned from head to toe. And he doesn't seem at all impacted by it. He's just out to kill these kids. He's going to get them. He's, he's determined more so than ever to kill. But you would think that he would be in excruciating pain. I mean, these are fresh third-degree burns, Troy. This man... This man would literally be in so much pain; he'd likely be in shock. He probably wouldn't be able to move. Uh, but somehow, some way, he's he's really coming on strong. He's ready to kill these kids, uh, and he's pissed. Well, you you know what? His love for Harriet is driving him because we get quite the revelation here. He he tells little Mandy that she is so beautiful that she looks just like her mother. But then he reveals to to Mandy that he he. Roger, not Ray. He is the one that killed Harriet. He killed Mandy's mom because he took her to Lover's Lane just to talk to her about how he felt about her. And when things, when she told him that she didn't feel the same way, things got a little heated. And that's when Ward Lampson showed up um, and, and tried to, you know, quell the situation. And so. Jack had no choice but to kill both of them. So Penny Penny Pusslips has been right all along because Harriet and Ward were not having an affair. I do like that. I do like that they give all of the characters, all of the uh, protagonists, this this lovely reveal that, you know, all along um, 
you know, this whole suspected tragedy, at least there's something positive to take away from it. Um, so I thought that was really thoughtful in the sense of building to a strong conclusion. Uh, the reveal is batshit crazy. Um, the fact that it is Jack who is the killer all along, um, but is also like not the only killer because yes, Ray is like also a killer, uh, and his patient, but Ray's like off doing his own thing. So some people have been killed by Ray, but I guess Jack has just been using the fact that Ray has escaped to be like, it's the perfect time to unleash my, my plan. Well, Chloe has killed too. Chloe is one of the killers because right here we cut back to the car. Michael or Chloe are struggling. She's trying to kill Michael with this fucking hook. He's able to push a cigarette lighter in something that we are that long, long gone from cars. But guys, if you're, if you're a young and there used to actually be cigarette lighters in cars that you would push in and then you get red hot and you would light your cigarette with it. So he's able to push this in and when it pops out, he burns Chloe's cheek with it and he takes off running and of course she gets out of the car and she's like god damn it yearbook photos and as she's turning around a hooded figure approaches her and she thinks it's her dad she's like daddy what happened to you what did those fucks do to you you know you could at least give me a little bit of help this is what she said especially since I had to take care of Dougie and that bitch Janelle myself so we do know that Chloe is the one that killed Doug and Janelle uh, did she actually say she killed Janelle too because that really that yes mm. she says she, she she says that slut Janelle re, go I swear to God go back and rewatch it she said I had to take care of Dougie and that slut Janelle you're right you're right you're absolutely right which really is unfortunate because it does feel like a plot hole that they overlooked because it does make it absolutely impossible that she could have done both of those things at the same time. It really does. I mean, she couldn't have been carving. She could not have been carving into the wallpaper and outside of the house at the same time, the way they edited it. But I want to know, but I want to know, Roger, that's, I mean, I want to know how she knew Janelle was going to run up and get under that specific bed. That's the biggest plot hole of all the places Janelle could have run. She could have run out the front door. She could have run into a different room. How would she know? So you're telling me Chloe was just waiting under that bed, hoping that Janelle was going to come up there and sit on that bed. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense, but no. Well, come to find out the person like lifts their hood and shows Chloe their face. And it's a disgustingly hideous man. (laughs) Sorry, but this man is not, there's something wrong with him beyond. I don't know. Is he burned too? I don't know. Was he in the house? Because his face is fucked up, but it's not her father and it's Ray. And he immediately reacts by fucking hooking Chloe across the throat, killing her blood splatters everywhere. Chloe, thank God, at least gets her come up. It's a pretty cool moment, too, because you see her, like, violently hit the the windshield and, like, you know, drag down the car. It, in fact, looks more violent than the reveal actually is because you do end up seeing her uh, laying dead and, like, you know, yes, her throat's cut. But overall, it looks like it looks like he slices her face fucking off. Like how hard she hits that glass. It's it's quite impressive. Um, But, yeah, the reveal... Yeah, it's just more blood. I don't know. But yeah, the fact that like Ray is now thrown into the mix, like I get what they're going for. I, I think that the the basic idea of what they're trying to execute does make sense. But boy, oh boy, is it confusing for the viewer. Um, I don't think it translates that well, you know, and I, with some more explanation, I think this could have been streamlined really nicely and made a little more sense because I think there is a great concept there with having technically two separate parties of killers I like that. It just doesn't land that well. 
No, it's something you don't see. It's very unique to have three killers. I wouldn't say it's unique to have three killers, but to have three killers um, and two of them are working together and the third one is on his own. That's something you don't see in a lot of horror movies. And it's actually a really cool concept. It's again, subverts expectations. It's putting a little curveball on the traditional slasher conventions. I do think it's a little sloppy. You know, the first time watching it, I can see how it can be super fucking confusing. Upon subsequent viewings, it gets a little bit more clear. And I think that's because I've seen this movie so, so much and I know, you know, what's going on now. It doesn't bother me as, as much, but yeah, I can see watching this the first time you're going to be confused as fuck. But again, I want to give the film its flowers for trying something so fucking unique and different. So Michael is able to run to that car where Jack is with, with Mandy and pulls Jack off of Mandy and throws him to the ground. Him and Mandy take off running. They do find Chloe dead and, and Jack sees Chloe. Now his, his incestuous daughter that he's been fucking. And he's like, Oh my God, my baby. And he then reacts by fucking attacking Michael. There's a struggle. He like knocks Michael out. And at the same time, Tom shows up because Mandy did tell him when she was on the phone with him a few minutes earlier that they were at lover's lane. So Tom shows up and shoots his brother, Jack. And there's this moment where he like walks over and all of a sudden Jack comes back to Jack is not dead. Obviously the typical slasher thing. He comes back to life and he attacks Tom and they're struggling. Okay. So Penny you know, has been pretty strong character through this film. You know, she punched that poor little high school student. This woman is the most worth. She just stands there the entire time watching Jack virtually almost kill Tom. She does nothing except stand there with a stupid expression on her face. She does become surprisingly useless. Both of the final girls do, um, you know, because uh, while she's standing there looking like a fucking idiot in that mock turtleneck, the pink mock turtleneck I can't stand. Uh, Maddie is shrieking, again, uh, shrieking, blood-curdling. And it's it's hard to listen to, this girl screams. Uh, and she's just kind of just fumbling around. I mean, it's just chaos. And it, no one's really getting a hold of the situation. Well, you got to give Mandy a little bit of credit because after some shrieking, she does run back into the car and get the hook that Chloe was using to attack Michael. And she does run out and and plant it right in in Jack's back. She does. Thank God for the extra hook, I guess. Like, thank God they had a clone hook. Well, she kills him. She kills him. She kills. She kills her uncle. I mean, you think about this family dynamic. These are these are relatives. They're all related, and they're like killing each other again. I want to go back to like Chloe and you know um, Mandy, supposed to be cousins. Like when she first found like. Chloe in the middle of the street looking like she's dead. Don't you think she'd be like, Oh my God, my cousin, we got to help her. She's like, no, come. I mean, I don't know. I think that it's just not, that was just something in the film that just was not necessary or not explored, but she does get to kill her uncle and the film fades into the next morning. All the police are there. Tom has to, you know, concede to Penny that she was right all along that, Ward and Harriet were not having an affair. I guess that's the only good thing to come out of this film because he tells his deputy to take Michael and Mandy to take him home, get him in a vehicle and take him home. So the deputy walks Michael and Mandy to another police car and they get inside 
and he knocks on the door to, to signal that the the other deputy can can drive away. He's like, "Take him home." And in kind of slow motion, we see a hand reach out of the driver's side, dump coffee, and then we see the hook come out to pull the car door closed. So the driver inside this vehicle is Ray, and the film ends with him driving Mike and Mandy off into the sunset to do God knows what with them. I mean, those poor fucking kids, as obnoxious as they both were, they just went through quite a lot of trauma. And we're not just talking physical trauma, also the emotional trauma that's being dug up. I mean, luckily they realized that both their parents weren't fucking each other, so that's great. But, like, poor Mandy, like, her uncle and her cousin just tried to fucking kill her after she found out they were banging each other this whole time. Like, that's fucking problematic. So, I really don't feel like these two deserve to die. I hope they survived. They may have been lame characters, but they did go through quite a lot of shit. Um, But I feel like he's going to kill them. Like, I mean, you're not going to introduce that hook one last time if he's not going off to drive them to their deaths. Uh, I mean, I guess that's the the most obvious inference to make, right? That whatever Ray's going to do with these two is not going to be good. Even though, you know, Ray himself... You know, it's also revealed he wasn't really a, a a bad character. It's just that Jack had 13 years to work on him, to convince him and to drive him crazy, to convince him that he was a killer. So, yeah, I'm assuming he's going to take these kids off to their deaths. And and poor Penny, 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 Puss Lips and, and uh, Tom are who knows what they're going to be doing now. Probably fucking each other after that revelation. You know, now they can like each other finally, but give into that chemistry. Give into it. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, yeah, the film could have had a sequel. It never did. Um, But I do like the fact that this film sort of has a little bit of a a cult following and it does have its little core fan base. And for all its flaws and for all of the silly, nonsensical things that, you know, we brought up in this film, I I do still find this film very, the word I want to use, Roger, is I find it very endearing. It's a comfort film for me. You know, I have I have a handful of comfort films that I can put on and just get, kind of get lost in the nostalgia of it. And this is one of them. And, and don't ask me why. It just it just has a unique a unique feel to it for being a 2000 slasher. It definitely feels like it could have been made in the in the 80s. The low budget of it is is charming. But yeah, I don't know. I can't really besides that, I can't really explain why I have such a fondness for this film. Would I ever, would I say it's a great film? Would I say it's one of my favorites of all time? No, absolutely not. But comfort film that's endearing. It absolutely is. I definitely have movies too, that I look back on them. Like, I don't know why I love them, but I do like, I hate to admit it, but like I have a secret love for Jeepers Creepers too. And even though like, I understand that Victor Salva is a horrible person still, like when I watch the movie, I'm like, Oh, but it makes me feel like, that generation it feels me like it makes me feel like like early 2000s like 2004 you know that was an important time for me i was in high school these films were really definitive and so i think a movie from 99 2000 for you makes sense why you know having discovered this and seen this back then and having had an impact on you makes a lot of sense to me you know and carrying that with you and i see the passion here and i think like I said, the fact that it looks like a true independent film, like it definitely does not look like this had a huge budget behind it. It leads me to give it a little more grace, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, lay off a little bit on some of the um, harsher judgments that I have, because 
I think it, it's a fun film. Um, there was definitely some really cool concepts there. They were trying to do something a little different. It doesn't feel like they're just trying to recreate the exact same storyline that we see in most slashers. They were trying to break the mold a bit. Um, and were they completely successful? No, they were not. But are there some really cool moments? And again, some fun character dynamics that I enjoy here? Absolutely. Um, and as we mentioned at the beginning of this, seeing Anna Ferris, a young Anna Ferris, before she was the focus, you know, before now when she's in, in films, like she is top build. Um, but back then, not only is she in this little dinky indie movie, but she's also a supporting role in it. Uh, yeah, I know. It's just cool to see how far she's come. So it was a really great to sit down and watch this after all this time. I've been so eager to do so. And yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a movie that I adored by any means. And there were certain aspects that I struggled with, but I'm really happy that I saw it. And I think after a few more viewings and un better understanding of, of what they're trying to do with this, I think I could really come to enjoy this film over a period of time. Um, I just need to get to know her a little bit better before I can say I love her and take her to Lover's Lane. Oh, well, I think you do. I think you need to give it some, you know, a few more watches I, I, because it is a film that definitely grows on you. And you, when you understand, you know, where the plot's going and you can watch it from that perspective again, knowing the ending, I think that also makes a big difference. Um, but yeah, I think two years in the making, Roger, this episode was definitely worth it because looking at the time, it's going to be probably our longest episode we've ever done oh my god how how is that i know <laughs> oh no or very close very close because yeah we are we are definitely very close to this being the longest episode that we ever done so guys we apologize but we are passionate about this we wanted to give you a lot of love on valentine's day and here you got it here you got it with with uh lover's lane so we'll wrap it up as always guys let us know your thoughts on lover of lover's lane um is it a film do you, is it a film that you uh, have a comfort for like me or are you like roger a little bit indifferent to it or do you hate it because i know there's people out there that fucking hate this film too let us know your thoughts um with that i'm going to quickly reveal what's uh what we're doing next week for our next episode and it's what's in the basket what's in the basket finally i'm just gonna say it we're covering fucking basket case oh god i can't wait this is gonna be a fun fucking conversation that little fucking Belial thing. I cannot, <laughs> cannot wait. Perfect. But guys, with that, thank you for sticking with us for two and almost three hours talking about Lover's Lane. I think that by itself is worth a five-star rating. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You tell them. It would be the perfect Valentine's gift. Absolutely. That's, a, that's true. Valentine's gifts for us. Five-star rating. And with that, guys, happy Valentine's Day. We hope you got a lot of love, not hooked in your vagina, but a lot of love. Well, maybe some of you want to get hooked in your vagina. I don't know. But with that, guys, good night. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, lovers. 